He once shot a man twice in the head on Christmas Eve for owing him $1,600. Beat his first victim to death with a closet rod. Strangled men to death. Stabbed, poisoned, shot, bludgeoned, burned, exploded, allegedly otherwise destroyed up to 200 dudes. Known as the Polak, or Big Rich, and eventually as the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski was a 6 foot 5 inch, 295 pound killing machine who worked as a hitman, fulfilling murder contracts for various East Coast mob families and their associates. He also killed other men simply because they annoyed him or reminded him of his dad. He killed to test out new killing techniques. He killed for over three decades. He also had a family and a quiet suburban home life with three kids and a wife for over 20 years. Today's time suck is mostly about the Iceman. And the Iceman is mostly about murder. Extra adult rating on this one, very graphic violence. So get out now if you don't want to hear about it or stay tuned and get sucked. You're listening to Time Suck. What's up, Time Suckers? Hope you had a good Labor Day. I'm Dan Cummins. Thanks for sucking. Thanks for listening to Time Suck, you sucking suckheads. Thanks for letting the suck touch you. Thanks for deciding not just to rub it around your lips, but for taking the suck all the way in. Thoughts and support uh, today go out to Texas Time Suckers. Going out right now for their fucking Hurricane Harvey. All the damage is done down in Houston and the surrounding areas. Donate if you, if you can to help them out. And, and be careful where you donate. Uh, if you do donate, a lot of scumbags taking advantage of the situation to make a quick buck. Houston Texans defensive legend J.J. Watt has set up a donation fund to help the victims of Harvey on youcaring.com. If you'd like to donate any amount at all, uh, the link is up in today's episode description. And, and you can also text Harvey2017 to 91999 to support the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund, a fund set up by Houston's mayor. Link for this also included in the episode description. And I'll be performing in Columbus, Ohio this week. Shows in Hollywood, California, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, Spokane, Washington, and more, much more coming up quick. Ticket links to the first live Time Suck and more shows in the episode description. And now, let's get to the Iceman. Richard Kuklinski was one of the scariest men in the East Coast Mafia scene in the 1960s, 70s, and early 80s. A world of notoriously scary men. He killed mob bosses, other hitmen, a lot of people who owed money to people that, you know, they should have never borrowed it from in the first place. Uh, and he also killed just some random dudes who happened to be, you know, uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time looking at the wrong motherfucker. And, and the murders meant nothing to him. Uh, other gangsters described, described him as cold as ice. He could brutally murder a man and then just happily, you know, eat a sandwich his wife made him. Maybe take the kids out for some ice cream, buy him some new toys. He could kill a man on Christmas Eve and then watch his kids open presents on Christmas morn. And just pose for some family photos, like all, all's good in the world. How does someone turn out like that? How does it all start? Well, for Richard, it started, uh, you know, in a nice family in the suburbs of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. His dad was an assistant principal, and his mom was a secretary at a textile manufacturer. Richard, uh, he had two brothers, Tony and Jason, and, and Jason would go on to star as a middle linebacker for Penn State in the early 60s. Rich was well-liked. He was voted uh, best smile, most likely to succeed in his high school yearbook, Loved his father dearly. He'd later say that uh, his dad dying of a heart attack when he was 24 was the worst moment of his life. And he was, he was a bit of a mama's boy as well, and uh, his, his mom would later visit him in prison, uh, refusing to believe what her Eagle Scout son had been convicted of. He graduated second in his class, uh, enrolled in St. Joseph's University, where he was going to study accounting. Uh, he, he even actually saved uh, a girl from drowning while he was volunteering uh, as a lifeguard for the local YMCA. 
and then uh, none of that fucking happened. Get out of here. You don't, you don't have an idyllic childhood and turn out like the Iceman. Does not happen. No, Richard Kuklinski was an incredibly violent man born into a home of preposterous violence. So let's find out uh, one of the ways you can make a murderer by jumping into today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. April 11th, 1935. Richard is born to Stanley and Anna Kuklinski in Jersey City, New Jersey, a rough blue-collar industrial city just across the water, but also a world away from Manhattan. It's part of the New York City metropolitan area. Uh, Richard was born to a Polish family, and if you know anything about Polacks, uh, they are a dirty, inferior, immoral bunch of subhuman savages. Uh, kidding. My wife is Polish, and uh, her maiden name is Radzeminski. I just like to denigrate her lineage, you know, whenever possible, to potentially get a rise out of her. No, he, he was born to a Polish family, though, a poor family in a town full of poor people. Jersey City, in the early 20th century, had, had a large Polish Catholic population, blue-collar, uh, blue-collar immigrants recently, you know, uh, having just arrived to America, uh, the Lackawanna, Erie, Pennsylvania, and Central Railroads all had stations in Jersey City, and the city was the last stop for, you know, like a whole bunch of produce and other goods making its way east on tracks throughout the nation to then ship off on boats across the Atlantic. Tracks all over Jersey City. Uh, the main thoroughfare was actually called, uh, may, may still be called, uh, Railroad Avenue. Uh, while, to, while today there's a lot of good white-collar jobs in Jersey City, especially in the uh, financial sector, you know, being so close to Wall Street, uh, that wasn't the case in the early 20th century. It, it was a lot of hard, manual labor jobs, uh, you know, in an era when workers weren't as protected, uh, you know, from safety and different things and, and long hours as they are now. The summers are, were, are hot, were and are, hot and humid. The winters, you know, brutally cold. Lives were hard for a lot of residents of a bustling little blue-collar town. And it was here that Richard's parents met each other. Uh, his father, Stanley, was born in Warsaw, Poland, immigrated over with his parents and two brothers. His mom was Irish. Her parents had uh, immigrated over from Dublin, and, and they both died shortly after bringing the family to Jersey City. Her dad died of pneumonia, and her mom was run over by a truck in a freak accident. Man, fucking rough luck. Man, da dad dies of pneumonia. Mom gets hit by a truck, literally. Uh, she grew up in an orphanage where religion was quite literally uh, beat into her by sadistic nuns, and and, and that's not a shot at uh, <laughs> just Catholicism in general. That's, that's these particular nuns. Nuns, I guess, were particularly sadistic uh, in Jersey City. And and and, and uh, Father Hansi McSecret, uh, you know, one of those kind of type priests, uh, also molested her and took her virginity before the age of ten. So fucking rough life uh, for mom. Completely, man. Both parents die. Orphanage, physically beat, molested, and raped all before the age of ten. That's, that's Anna. At, eight, at 18, Anna uh, had to leave the orphanage and almost immediately met Richard's dad, Stanley, at a church dance. And they got married in July in 1925. They rented a flat in a two-story house on 3rd Street. And Stanley had a job as a brakeman for Lackawanna Railroad. And, uh, and then Anna uh, quickly learned that she had went from a bad situation to a worse one and that she had married a fucking Polish demon. Stanley was not a large man, but apparently he was uh, very strong. Uh, strong enough just to kind of, you know, give some people some serious beatings. And he was possessive, jealous. He had an escalating drinking problem and just a violent temper. And he soon began to just beat the shit out of Anna on a regular basis. He'd get drunk, come home, just toss her around like a rag doll. And then in 1929, uh, the couple has their first child, you know, a little boy uh, named Florian. And Florian uh, gets beat too. Uh, he'd get hit for wet in the bed. He'd get hit for crying. He'd get hit for crying because he just got hit for wetting the bed and crying. Jesus Christ. And then when Richard was born in 1935, he starts getting hit too. The family was a mess, man. And Anna just, uh, she didn't leave, didn't leave Stanley because of her, you know, the, the Catholic kind of stigma with divorce, especially at that time. 
You just you just didn't get a divorce, so she just took it. Uh, just prayed a lot, you know. Uh, Stanley would uh, would come home with a proverbial lipstick on his collar. He'd be messing around with some some women at some bar. Uh, and then accuse her of being unfaithful and then beat the shit out of her in front of the boys. He's, he's that guy. He's a sociopath. Uh, according to Richard, when Rich was little, his dad would do shit like wrap a belt around his fist and just kind of punch the boys for sport. Little, little boys, man. His boys just punch him for sport when he was drunk. Uh, and he's not like, you know, pulling punches either. He hit him so hard he'd knock him unconscious. Rich said he'd become so afraid of his father he'd sometimes wet himself with fear uh, when his dad was home. Uh, he would just get incredibly anxious just at the sound of his voice. And, and then, of course, his dad, you know, uh, when he did what himself, you know, would beat him for that. H- how do you do that to a child? I guess uh, by just being a, a true sociopath, just truly incapable of empathy. Uh, February 1st, 1941, when Florian is 11 and Richard is 5, Stanley uh, cements his induction into the Father Hall of Shame, uh, into the, the ring of the worst dads of all time, by actually beating his oldest son, Florian, to death. Hit him one too many times in the back of the head. Kid never got back up. And then the family covered for Stanley, said he fell down the stairs. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine watching your dad, the man who is supposed to be your protector in the world, actually beat your older brother to death? And then watch your mom cover it up, you know, help cover it up. You know, your mom who also gets beat and also who does nothing to protect you from getting beat. Think that might fuck your head up a little bit? You know, I don't think childhood woes should be taken into account when sentencing adult criminals for their crimes, you know. I don't, but, but I do think it's important to understand why monsters become monsters so we can do everything we can as a society to prevent more monsters from being created. I mean, in the end, you're accountable for your actions as an adult, but God, man, you know, uh, many of us were given a much, much better moral code to start working with in life than Richard Kuklinski. So uh, when, with Florian gone now, uh, Rich becomes the sole recipient of Stanley's parental beatings. And not only is he getting beat at home, he's getting beat at school, too. He was a shy, awkward little kid with no real friends, horrible self-esteem. Of course he is. Think about his home life. You know, it makes him a target of, of bullying at school as well. Two Irish brothers who lived on the street uh, would just beat Rich on a regular basis. And then as Rich got older, you know, the, the beatings just continued and intensified. And then one day, uh, Stanley actually watched his son uh, run home, running away from the chasing brothers to avoid yet another beating. And then Stanley, being the uh, uh, exemplary father figure he was, uh, whipped Richard across the face with a fucking belt the second he came inside the house. Told him that no son of his was going to be a little chicken shit who ran from bullies. And uh, told him, you know, he better get after those kids. Again, can you imagine having this guy for a dad? If this guy lived next door to me now and I saw something like that, you know, in addition to calling CPS, I would be fantasizing on a regular basis. Like, how can I get away with killing that son of a bitch? How can I get away with just fucking beating him to death? Uh, Stanley then demanded, you know, yeah, he demands his son goes to fight back. Six Richard, you know, on the bullies, like, like he'd stick a junkyard dog on some trespassers. Rich apparently finally unleashes all that pent up anger that he'd been building up and, you know, building up inside of him for his entire horrible life. And he beats the shit out of them both. And then, the, and then the father of these Irish boys, uh, runs and goes and uh, pushes Richard to stop him, you know, get him off his sons. And then Stanley jumps out of the house, runs over, gets in a fight with the dad and then knocks her dad out. Finally, uh, Rich gets a little bit of protection and some, you know, approval from his dad. Uh, all it took was violence, you know? That's, that's the one thing uh, old daddy approves of is, is, is putting a good beating on somebody. Well, on September 27th, 1942, a year and a half after the murder of Florian, Stanley and Anna have a third child, you know? Why not Why not bring some more good into the world? Why not, you know, bring some more, some more uh, life into this incredible nuclear family unit? Uh, they bring in their first daughter, Roberta, and suddenly and incredibly, the violence stops. 
And the Kukling Seeds, they open up an ice cream parlor, a uh, malt shop. They call it Stan and Ann's Milkshakes and Malts. And instead of getting drunk and beating his family, Stanley decides it would be you know, more fun to have Sundays. Uh, he preferred hot fudge uh, with two cherries, uh, and he liked to play board games with the kids. Uh, he'd still he still get a little twitchy when you know when you made a monopoly, uh, playing monopoly. You know before he did, then and then refused to make some trades like an asshole. So everyone has a chance to win, but you know he kept his belt on, and, and no one got punched. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. The pressure of another mouth to feed made Stanley even more fucking violent, made him even more uh, you know of a mean son of a bitch than he already was. Now he's back to beating you know three family members instead of two. And, uh, and he kicks up his womanizing to just the next deplorable level. Instead of just hooking up with women in bars, uh, he starts bringing uh, women home from bars. Like, bringing them home to where his fucking family is. Just comes home drunk. Starts banging these women in the living room while the, while the kids are in their rooms and wife's in her room. Just what a fucking savage. Just a shameless savage. Uh, Richard would later say in prison interviews that, he, that uh, he began around this time to regularly fantasize about killing his dad. Uh, you know? And this is one of his, would be one of his life regrets is just not killing his father. He would think about that a lot, talk about that a lot. Like he just really wished he would have killed his dad. Uh, dad was just, you know, still beating him so hard that he once knocked Rich out for half the night after hitting him in the head so he didn't learn from the Florian beating, you know, that you might want to take it easy. Might want to might work the body instead of the head. Uh, Rich was also getting beat by his teachers at school. Just so many fucking beatings. Just get, getting beat everywhere he turned. He went to a Catholic school that apparently had some pretty uh, ruthless nuns. Maybe those same nuns his mom had. And they loved to whack him on the knuckles with a hard ruler uh, when he tried to use his fingers to read, which he was doing because he was dyslexic. And, uh, and the nuns would hit him hard enough to make his fingers bleed. Because that's, you know, that's how you get a kid to learn. You fucking beat him. Uh, when he finally had enough uh, one day, uh, and according to him, he told the nun, you hit me again, cunt, and I'll break your fucking head. Which I don't blame him. Uh, the nun ran down the hall, grabbed a priest who then came back into the classroom and throttled the shit out of Richard, you know, another beating. Then he came home and he got smacked around a bit by his mom, <laughs> you know, told him not to act up in school. Jesus. Okay. May 5th, 1944, uh, Stan and Ann welcomed their fourth and final child into the world, Joseph. And then, uh, with four mouths to feed, uh, now at home, old, old, uh, you know, uh, father of the year, Stan does what, uh, great dads, you know, do when the going gets tough and he just takes off, he leaves. And he starts shacking up with a, a, some new lady and, and just abandons his family financially and completely. And then Anna gets two jobs, you know, and has to raise three kids. She's working days at the Armand Meat Packing Company and cleaning the floors of St. Mary's Church in the evenings. And then Rich also uh, gets a job as an animal exterminator, kind of, not really. No one hires him. He just, he just takes it upon himself to rid the neighborhood of stray pets. More of a volunteer position, I guess, uh, unpaid internship. Uh, young Richard begins to turn his rage from his, from his constant physical abuse he's experienced in life, and, and he just, uh, you know, just puts that on the neighborhood animals. The old, you hit me, I kick the dog kind of syndrome. And he starts doing shit like capturing stray cats, tying their tails together with whatever he can, you know, find, and then throwing them over a clothesline and watching them, you know, just tear themselves to shreds. Uh, he'd also get gasoline, pour it on stray dogs, watch them run off on fire, beat animals to death with clubs, pipes, hammers. Maybe, maybe if a good therapist had gotten a hold of Richard around this time and had him removed from his home, maybe... He could have, you know, been reformed and turned into a productive member of society, you know, or maybe he was already too psychologically damaged. Who knows? I mean, by God, by the time you've reached a place in your life where you're setting dogs on fire, probably not going to also, you know, be prom king, probably not going to be captain of the football team, Valley Victorian, you know, maybe you can still be reformed somewhat, Pro- probably not going to be given, you know, a moving speech on graduation night. Uh, eight years ago, I couldn't even imagine delivering a valedictorian's address and getting a full ride to Dartmouth. Where, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be studying pre-law and sociology. Uh, you know, eight years ago, I was, I was far too busy just burning Labradors to death and forcing cats to tear each other apart. <laughs> uh, my how things changed. No, you're never going to hear that speech. Not ever. 
Uh, Richard also turned to crime early in life, initially stealing food to eat because Stanley, you know, obviously uh, wasn't providing anything from the family and, and, and mom, you know, even though she's working two jobs, you know, she's not able to get it done. And then Anna not, not, only, does not, uh, not only does she not condone the stealing, uh, uh, when she finds out she, she beats Richard for getting some food for him and his you know, brother and sister, beats him with pots and pans and broomsticks, whatever she can get a hold of. According to Richard, she, uh, she once knocked him out uh, with a good shot to the head. Again, the beatings, my God. Uh, shortly after Dad moves out, uh, had moved out, uh, Mom had moved the family to a federally subsidized apartment building and some projects on New Jersey Avenue and 15th Street. And, and the new digs were full of some rough project kids who immediately began to bully the fuck out of young, skinny, shy, awkward Richard, who now doesn't even have his dad around to maybe kind of stand in sometimes. Uh, you know, growing up, it, it was as if Rich had a kick me sign just kind of permanently attached to his back. And, and everyone took him up on the offer. Uh, one kid in particular who liked to beat on young Richard was a was the head honcho of some little group of kind of project tough guys, some you know some kids, a, a kid named Charlie Lane. More on Charlie in just a bit. Uh, when Rich isn't getting beat, he starts reading true true crime, pulp fiction stories, uh, true crime magazines, tales of violent assholes getting some you know violence dealt to them. Uh, unsurprisingly, appeals to Richard. He also likes reading about criminals taking what they wanted from the world, making names for themselves. You know, I get that. Not taking shit from anyone. And this, too, you know, again, appeals to him a great deal. So he begins dreaming at this point of becoming one of these guys, one of these untouchable criminal mastermind guys. Uh, he loves hearing, you know, how the crimes are, are solved in the books and articles he reads, especially murder, and begins to dream of, you know, how uh, he could get away with murdering people. You know, there's a lot of people on this list. Dad, dad, you know, is right at the top. And, and also bullies in his life. Bullies like Charlie Lane. 1948, when he's 13, Richard decides to uh, fight back, stand up to Charlie Lane and his little thugs. And it uh, doesn't work out for him. You know, he, he tries, you know, uh, starting some stuff and then they finish it and they beat him so bad they almost kill him. They punch and kick, uh, you know, him to the ground, kick him while he's down, spit on him, beat him so bad he couldn't leave his apartment for a week after that. Mom wanted him to go to the police, report it, but he didn't want to be a rat. You know, he already had that criminal mind. Not going to be a rat, not going to talk to the cops. You know, he must have been badly beaten when his mom uh, wanted him to report the beating to the police, even though she already has beaten him unconscious herself. What the fuck? What was, what is that conversation? Hey, Richard, it is not okay, sweetie. What these kids are doing? What have they done? What they've done to you? God, God knows when when I beat you, I don't I don't keep kicking you once you're down, honey. That's that's because I love you. You know that, right? I would never spit on you after slamming a frying pan upside your back of your head, knocking my sweet boy unconscious. I'm not I'm not a monster like these. These kids need the police. Is what they need. Uh, once he's healed, uh, Richard sets out for revenge one night with the intention of just giving Charlie the beating of his life. Just wants to really, you know, give him a good beating. And he takes a two-foot closet rod uh, out of the apartment, and he hides outside this uh, New Jersey Avenue entrance to the project he's living in, knowing that Charlie, that's how he come, where he comes home, is that entrance. Eventually, Charlie does come home that night, and Richard pops out in the dark, you know, from behind the dark spot he's kind of hiding in. Uh, closet rod in hand, Charlie takes him, takes him to, tells him to beat it, or, uh, you know, he's going to beat his ass again. Uh, Rich doesn't budge. Instead, he swings that closet rod, and he hits Charlie right in the side of the head and knocks him to the ground. And then he just pounces, jumps on top of Charlie, and just starts hitting him over and over and over and over. All that pent-up anger from being bullied by his father, his mother, the nuns, the priests, you know, from Charlie himself and other bullies being unleashed on Charlie's head and body. And when he's done, uh, you know, he pops up, starts yelling at Charlie to get up and fight back. Come on, you know, fight back, fight me. And then realizes that, that he's beat Charlie to death. Uh, he's beat Charlie to death. You know, Charlie he takes his pulse. Nothing's there. And now he's, you know, now he's panicking. Now he's, now he's, he's also, you know, committed his first murder at the age of only 13. Uh, he's terrified he's going to be caught and locked up. Uh, but then he, so he steals a car. 
using skills he'd learned studying those true crime in those true crime magazines. And he, and he gets Charlie in the trunk of that car, and then he drives the body a couple hours down to South Jersey. And, then, and yeah, I know he's like 13, but he's, but he's a big kid. He's a big dude, uh, tall and stuff like that. So I guess he could pass as a, you know, an adult driving. Or not as an adult, you know, but like as a 15-year-old or whatever. So uh, uh, he drives him down there, and then he you know, finds this, some marshland. And then, and then he remembers, as he's going to dispose of the body, he remembers you know, from the crime magazines. I'm sure he's thinking about it the whole way down. That you know, uh, bodies are identified by like fingerprints and dental records primarily. So after taking the body out of the trunk and dragging out in the marsh, he he finds a hammer slash hatchet tool in the trunk and uses it to smash uh, smash all of Charlie's teeth out and chop his fingers off. And then he leaves the body, you know, for for animals to scavenge. And then he takes the fingertips and teeth fragments uh, and just kind of you know scatters them about another marsh a little ways away. And then he drives home, apparently feeling pretty fucking proud of himself, feeling great. Well, shortly after killing Charlie, uh, he found the other members of the gang, and that he, you know, that had beat him. And, and while he didn't kill the other kids, he beat the shit out of them as well. And just, you know, really started to uh, realize that he enjoyed dishing out punishment a whole lot more than taking it. And he decided, you know, to never let anyone get away with beating him ever again. After killing Charlie, uh, Rich starts uh, going to school less and less. Over the next few years, uh, soon drops out altogether. Starts hanging out in some pool halls nearby Hoboken, or Hoboken, a notorious mafia kind of hotbed, a town that. Uh, you know, has claimed at different points to have more bars per capita in its history than any other town in America. And yeah, he's only 14 when he starts going, which I, do, I know, again, sounds crazy, kind of like the car. But, you know, he's a big kid, and I don't, I don't get the feeling that local police were really worried about underage drinking in Jersey in the early 50s. I don't feel like it was a top priority for law enforcement. Uh, he gets really good at pool, makes some decent money, you know, pool hustling uh, over the next few years. Also develops a reputation as a tough guy, doesn't take shit. A dude uh, quick to break a pool, pool cue over a fool's head if he gets too lippy. After a pair of brothers ganged up on him and beat his ass after one pool game, he tracked one of them down later and fucking stabbed him in the stomach. The other brother fled town. Yeah, I bet he did. He, he and four other juvenile delinquents around this time formed a little gang called Coming Up Roses, uh, and they each got a little matching tattoo on their left hand, which you can, you know, you could see when you look up uh, documentaries and stuff of Richard Kukling. See that t- tattoo, you know, on his little on his left hand there, kind of between his thumb and his fingers on the back of his hand. Second man Rich claims to have killed is an Irish cop. He kills around this time named Boyle. A uh, guy went by the name of Boyle Drunken, a uh, guy apparently insulted Rich uh, over and over as they played pool. And unfortunately for Doyle, uh, he reminded Rich of his of his father, of being tormented by his father. I guess he kind of looked like his dad. After the bar closes, Rich uh, finds Doyle. He just kind of waits for him, finds him passing out uh, in his car, waits for him to pass out, and then thinks about just going over there and stabbing him. But he knows if he does that, he'll be a prime suspect in murder. So instead, he walks to a local gas station, buys some gasoline, comes back, pours it on Doyle. And then just like one of those old neighborhood dogs, he just fucking lights him on fire. And then he slept like a baby that night, I guess, you know? No big no big whoops. Dole, if Doyle didn't want to be burned alive, then he shouldn't have called me a, a dumb Polak, you know, right? Affair's fair. In 1951, uh, when Rich was just 16, he moved uh, in with a woman he met in a bar, Linda, an older woman, around the age of 25, a woman it's almost impossible to find information on. Biographers tend to focus almost exclusively on his second wife, Barbara. However, he and Linda uh, would later have two boys together, boys Rich would later abandon, He'd later say he never wanted kids with Linda. It just happened. Never loved her, just liked the sex. Apparently, uh, she was almost always in the mood, and he never really wanted to marry her. Uh, he didn't even tell his family when they got married at City Hall. But he did marry her, and he also used to beat the shit out of her, uh, like dad, like son. Uh, his little Coming Up Roses gang started making a name for themselves as a group of bathroom brawlers, tough guys who rarely, if ever, lost a fight. And, and they made money robbing liquor stores burglarizing rich people's homes and surrounding suburbs, breaking into warehouses. Their activities attracted the attention of a, a local mafia family, the uh, the Cavalcante family, uh, who the Sopranos are actually based on, the HBO Sopranos. And a member of this crime family, uh, Carmine uh, Genovese, approached the guys with a job. 
a contract killing, a job they took. And then when it came to doing the killing, uh, the other four members of the gang couldn't go through with it. No one could pull the trigger, except Richard. He took the gun from John Wheeler, who was the toughest guy in the crew when it came to bar fights, the guy who was initially going to do the killing, uh, but John just couldn't bring himself to walk up to a dude he had no personal beef with, some dude he didn't know, and just, you know, shoot him down. So Richard got out of the Lincoln, the crew was riding in, walked up to the target, you know, after he'd taken the gun from, from Wheeler, uh, and, and, and found this guy, this guy was about to get into his car, uh, and then just puts the gun to the back of the guy's head, pulls the trigger, and then walks back to his crew, hopped in the car, and then they sped off and acted like nothing happened. Victor, victim uh, never even saw it coming. His crew couldn't believe how casual Richard was about it. Just no emotion. Supposedly, John Wheeler said, Man, Rich, you're cold like ice. And then they went back to a very pleased Carmine who gave them each 500 bucks. Man, 500 bucks for taking a dude's life. And again, uh, just like when his dad approved of him beating up those bullies, you know, years ago, Richard Kuglinski uh, finds more validation through violence, you know? They're talking about what a great job he did. Everybody's talking him up. This is how he gets his self-esteem, his murder. Uh, after this first job, the Coming Up Roses gang starts getting a lot of work from Carmine, you know, hijacking trucks, stealing dockyard shipments, you know, just whatever kind of criminal enterprise they can make enough money on to make it worth it. And Carmine pays them well, and they live it up, you know, doing shit like flying to Vegas, pissing it all away, partying. They once made a million dollars in one night after hitting up an armored truck. And I guess they were basically broke a few months later. Just fast cars, high-stakes poker poker games, you know, just easy come, easy go kind of lifestyle. I mean, they're still teenagers. Uh, life was fast and fun for the gang. But then John Wheeler and Jack Dabrowski, another Coming Up Roses gang member, fucked up big time. They held up a card game that was sponsored by the Cavalcante family-made man, Albert Parenti, uh, a job that had not been authorized by Carmine Genovese, Albert knew Richard wasn't personally involved, you know, when he found out, uh, which was the only reason he didn't kill Richard, you know. Uh, he, he decides to meet with Richard, lets him know uh, that the only way out of this fuck-up was to remove Wheeler and Jack. You know, they had to be killed, and to prove his loyalty to the devil, to the uh, to Cavalcante family, uh, the family wanted Richard to do the hit, you know, and Richard did. He killed two of his best friends, two of the best friends he'd ever had. Found Jack outside a bar, shot him in the head before he even saw Richard coming. And then he found John shortly after that coming out of his girlfriend's apartment and shot him down in the street. Left both bodies where they laid so the police would find him, they'd make the papers, and the DeCavalcante family would know that he did what had been asked of him. Well, after that, the other two coming up Roses members, you know, heard rumors that Richard had killed Jack and John, and they avoided Richard like the plague. Hell yeah, they did, man. They knew all too well what he was capable of. They'd seen it firsthand. Well, by 1954... 19-year-old Richard Kuklinski, by his own account, had now killed four people, you know, two of which were some of his best friends. And before we push even further into the darkness that is the Iceman, let's lighten it up with a little comedy from today's sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Mark Maron's new Netflix special, Too Real, premiering on Netflix this week, Tuesday, September 5th. That's right. Since there's a good chance uh, you are listening to Time Suck this episode on or after September the 5th, you can watch it today. Watch it right after you're done listening to this podcast. In this special, uh, the fantastic veteran comic and legendary podcaster talks about how meditation makes him crazy, how he's not big on fun, how he turns profound discomfort into an art form. Mark is one of the most respected names in comedy, one of the stars of the new critically acclaimed Netflix original series, Glow. Uh, really, I've watched uh, some of that. Uh, I'm going to watch some more. Really funny show, a period piece about wrestling. Really funny. And, and you can hear the trailer for his new special, his new special called Too Real right now. A Netflix comedy special. I don't know how to have fun. How do you have fun? How do you guys do it? Like, I don't think I would have come to this show. 
Mark Marin's mind. My comfort zone is uncomfortable. It's a complicated place. I'm not the most courageous guy. I'm sort of an alpha pussy. There's the classic alpha male, just a meathead, rage-filled, like, Rah! and then there's the alpha pussy who makes fun of that guy. Mark Marin, too real. Now streaming only on Netflix. So watch Mark Marin Too Real, only on Netflix, September 5th. Very funny dude I've seen live several times myself. How funny is that after the great pussy debate <laughs> we had here on Time Suck a while back that he says it. His word, not mine, Time Sucker. Save any angry emails you have, uh, uh, you know. I do think Mark is, is very funny, and I am sure that the special is going to be great. Okay, so in 1954, that's where we were. Uh, 19-year-old Richard Kuklinski transitions from bully killer, uh, contract killer, to just flat-out serial killer. You know, even though he, he'd lived his entire life within a mile or two of Manhattan, he'd only actually ever, uh, ever been to New York City a handful of times and never by himself. And then according to later prison interviews, he just starts taking the ferry across the Hudson and going on evening walks by himself just around the city, just kind of checking it out. And one night when he's over there walking around by himself, an aggressive panhandler gets in his face one too many times. He gets a little bit too pushy, demanding money. Uh, the guy does it, you know, in a dark side street where no one else is around and, you know, uh, there's no witnesses. And so Richard just takes his knife out. He'd always carry at least one knife and, and one handgun on him in public whenever he left the house as an adult and just stabs this dude twice in the chest, just pop, pop, you know, pulling him in close, watching the light go out in his eyes before letting him drop to the ground. He'd say later, I enjoy seeing the lights go out. I enjoy killing up close and personal. I always wanted the last image they had to be my face. Man, this motherfucker. Zero empathy. What an unusual beast, man. Part hitman, part serial killer. I don't know. I guess maybe that's not so unusual, you know? I mean, if you're willing to kill for money, it can't be a big leap to just kill because you feel like some dude needs to die. Well, after this truly uh, kind of, you know, first uh, random kill, after this first truly random kill, you know, he claims to have uh, killed many more victims over the next few months. He'd come to New York City alone, and if someone bothered him on the street, in a bar, wherever, and he had a chance to, to get them with no witnesses around, they were as good as dead. He'd say the only criteria was that they had to be a man. No women, no kids, man. That, that was his murder moral code. Uh, he'd be horrifically physically abusive to women, as you're going to soon find out. Uh, he, you know, he'd abandon a couple of kids of his own, but, he, but he's not going to kill them. Because, you know, he's not a bad guy. He's got, he's got his principles, you know? Really, really fucked up principles, but I guess principles nonetheless. Well, 1955, uh, Linda gets pregnant, and, and Richard wants her to get an abortion. Uh, and when she, when she does not, he becomes violent, even punched her in the stomach to try and basically abort the baby himself. But the baby's born anyway. Richard Jr., in 1955, and 20-year-old Richard is a dad for the first time, and he marries Linda, he says, for the kid's sake. Well, fatherhood does not deter the killings. By 1956, uh, he, you know, he's still killing, and now he has two kids because his second son, David, is born. Uh, Richard had emotional feelings of love towards his kids. Or, I'm sorry, he had no emotional feelings of love towards his kids, but he was protective of them. Uh, one example of this was w when the superintendent of the apartment he lived in with Linda slapped both Richard's kids for allegedly being too loud when he wasn't home. Linda called Richard at a local bar. Told him what happened. You know, he got in his car, drove to find this dude at the bar, beat the fuck out of him. Also got punched. Uh, he punched the bartender uh, when, the, when the dude tried to stop him, and he almost went to jail for that. The bartender was a, an off-duty cop, and Richard had to use his mob connections to get off, you know, easy relatively with a $3,000 fine, price slash bribe, and uh, no jail time. Uh, Rich uh, almost goes to prison for his entire life around that time as well uh, for another bar altercation kind of gone bad uh, when a truck driver who actually was tough enough to smack the six foot five inch Richard around uh, follows Richard after the bar fight, you know, uh, follows him uh, like in his car, like, like they're going to like have like a little car chase type thing, you know, uh, kind of cuts him off at this one point, him and his uh, 
buddies hop out to you know come over and give Rich a beating, but it doesn't happen because he's got a thirty-eight on him, and he just starts shooting, and he just kills uh, kills all three of them, kills them in broad daylight. Could have been you know caught easily for that, but he got lucky. No one was around, and so he he throws all three bodies into a cave uh, he found while hunting in the wilderness of Buck County sometime earlier. According to Iceman interviews years later, a lot of men would end up disappearing uh, in caves in Buck County. Now, I, I, I do have to uh, uh, bring this up at this point. There, there is a, many people out there who dispute his various murder claims. Uh, I feel compelled to say that. You know, years after Kuklinski was captured, amateur sleuths, serial killer fanatics would like do stuff like search the caves of Buck County. And according to a 2013 Philadelphia Inquirer article I read, no remains were ever found. Richard Kranzel, who wrote the, uh, uh, about the county's case for the National Speological Society, uh, said that the long-closed Durham mine is the only place large enough to hide human remains. The mine opened during the Revolutionary War when its iron ore was made into cannonballs and gunshot. It was later used for commercial purposes before closing in 1908. And he says nothing was found in there. Now, now so did Richard exaggerate? Maybe. Did he lie? Uh, maybe. But also maybe not, you know? Uh, the dude definitely killed people. Uh, the only question is how many. And while he allegedly never killed a woman, uh, he did commit one of the most horrific examples of domestic abuse uh, I can remember reading. One evening, Richard's younger brother, Joe, uh, tells Richard he'd seen a guy, Sammy James, and Rich's wife, Linda, go into a room at the Hudson Hotel. Room 16, his brother tells him, ground level right near the Coke machine. Now, Rich and Linda did not have much of a relationship at all at this point. After the birth of the second kid, David... Uh, they were married in, in name only. You know, Richard wasn't even there a lot of times. But it was the principle of it that bothered him. You don't, you don't disrespect him by fucking his wife. Even if he's not fucking his wife, you don't fuck his wife, right? I, I think that, that's actually also the real reason uh, he beat the shit out of the apartment superintendent earlier, too. It wasn't about the guy actually upsetting and hurting Richard's kids. I think it was about this guy, you know, disrespecting Richard by hitting Richard's kids. You don't hit Richard's kids, not Richard Kuklinski. You don't fuck with him. You know, didn't matter that he didn't give a shit about his kids and was about to abandon them. You know, they're still his. So when Joe tells him uh, that his wife is fooling around, uh, Richard speeds off for the hotel. He kicks the door down, shows up, and uh, catches the two of them in the act. Uh, Richard then horrifically beats the shit out of Sammy, supposedly breaking uh, a preposterous amount of his bones. And then turns to Linda and says, you know, if you weren't the mother of my sons, implying, you know, he would kill her if she wasn't. And, and, then he, and then he holds her down, knocks her unconscious, and proceeds to uh, – God, this is brutal. Brace yourself for this one. Uh, be sure you're not in mid-bite or mid-drink uh, when you hear this. Uh, he cuts her nipples off. That's right. Takes a knife out, and he cuts off her nipples. If you happen to be eating some pepperoni pizza right now, uh, you're, you're probably going to want to throw that away. Ugh. After this incident, not surprisingly, uh, Richard apparently does not see much of Linda or the kids. Yeah, I don't – I don't think you get to work that out with some relationship counseling later, you know? There's uh, there's no form of I'm sorry that makes up for full-on nipple removal. What the fuck? Like, a lot of these tales, there is no police record of this, so we're relying on hearsay. But holy shit. You know, none of the sources I found attributed a source to this particular story, but it comes up a lot, and it's so specific, I feel like it probably, sadly, was true. Uh, that is some psychopathic shit, man. And, and if half the other stories are true about the Iceman... I'm not surprised he did it. The man hurt and killed people in the most inhuman of ways. And if you're thinking, you know, uh, why weren't these killings, if they did happen, big news, why weren't police in New York City and New Jersey looking for a serial killer if he's just stabbing, fucking shooting people all the time, cutting nipples off? Well, for one, a lot of murders were just chalked up to gang violence around this time. And according to former New York uh, Police Department Captain of Detectives Ken Rowe, he says, back then, there were no citywide records of homicides being kept as there are today. The local precinct had a file, but that was it. And because most of these killings were bums or people who no one really gave a fuck about, 
there was no incentive to properly work the case. You see, because he was killing in all these different ways. The cops didn't think one guy was doing it. In a sense, they were inadvertently giving him a license to kill. And well, and he would kill. He would kill in a variety of ways. And let's dig in to some of the worst of those ways in a very intense edition of Super Scary Stuff. Super Scary Stuff. All right, we're going to jump ahead as far as time goes uh, and dig into some of the Iceman's more horrific murders. A little bit of bouncing around here as far as time goes. Then we'll hop back into the timeline uh, for, for a wee bit to explain uh, who was hiring him for all these crimes, you know, and give, give him a, a little bit more context in his life while, while these crimes are going on. But here are the actual crimes. Uh, you know, Rich was uh, cut into a deal. And one with some other mobsters who had, uh, had a lead on a cargo truck loaded with televisions. They were, they were given the trucks, you know, uh, route details, and their job was to hijack the truck, stash it in a nearby farm, put it in a barn, and then deliver it to a cash buyer a week or so later who was going to buy the entirety of the truck's cargo cash on demand. All right, now the hijack part goes smoothly, as does storing the truck in the nearby farms, uh, put it in the barn there. But then when they come back to get the truck uh, a week or so later out of the barn, truck's gone. Well, Rich suspects the owner of the farm for knowing something about, you know, where it went. He asked him where the truck, you know, is gone, and uh, the guy plays dumb. And Rich isn't having it. He's convinced he's not telling him something, so he ties the guy to a tree to interrogate him, right? Just to get some rope, tie him to a tree so he's, like, you know, standing up and, like, facing outward, you know, so they can talk to him. And then Rich just kind of slaps him around in a while, you know, just roughs up his face a little bit, draws a little bit of blood. The guy is still claiming that he doesn't know anything. So then Rich gets the idea to go grab some emergency road flares he has in the trunk of his car, comes back and tells the guy he's going to hurt him real, real bad if he doesn't talk. Guy still plays dumb. Uh, so Richard takes uh, off the guy's shoes. Uh, remember, he's still tied to that tree, right? And he, he lights, lights one of the flares, takes the guy's you know, shoes and socks off, and then he holds the, the flame of the flare uh, just, just under one of the guy's feet. Not, not close enough to really burn it at first, just close enough to blister it. You know, and the guy still won't talk. He's like, man, this is, this is just going to get worse. This is just going to get worse. The guy won't, you know, acts like he knows, I don't know anything, I don't know anything. So then he pushes that flame closer to the bottom of the man's foot, close enough to start searing his flesh. Close enough to start burning it away. The guy is screaming bloody murder. Rich ends up burning his fucking foot down to the bone. Charred flesh and bone. Burns his toes down to charred meat and bone. The dude still will not talk. So he's like, all right, man, I'm going to get your other foot. The guy's like, I don't know anything, man. I don't, please stop. I don't know anything. Fucking does the same thing as other foot. His feet are just, oh, I'm sure the smell of them was just, oh, a powerful stench in the air. The dude's feet are just, you know, like if you've ever been camping and you're making some hamburger and uh, a little bit falls into the flame, you know, off the, the like that, but like that's, that's what your feet are now. Just charred up meat. Jesus. This guy's crippled for life now, man. You know, he's not, you're not going to reconstruct those things. Uh, still nothing though. Still no. The guy won't talk. We're just convinced though that he's holding back. So he lights the second flare, tells the farmer, if he doesn't talk, he's going to burn his fucking balls off. The guy begs and pleads, but doesn't say where the truck is. So Rich holds the second flare up to the man's jeans on his crotch, burns through his jeans, and then basically melts his testicles. I'm going to let that sink in for a bit. This guy's screaming, he's wailing, swears he doesn't know anything, he can barely talk. Still, Richard is convinced this guy knows something. So now he tells the guy he's going to burn his dick off as well. And then just before he does, the guy actually talks. The guy did know. The guy tells him that his buddy Sammy had the truck the whole time in another farm. 
You know, they were going to sell it because they really needed the money. Unfucking believable. If you know, how do you not talk when he starts burning that first foot? Like, how do you think it's going to, do you think it's going to somehow get better? That he's going to give up like a, like a guy like that's going to give up after burning a foot? No. You know, why, why, why after he's, after he's burned both feet and he's, you know, got the torch to your balls, maybe then you could be like, oh, okay, 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 okay. I can talk. I can talk. Why, why do you have, why is that the dick that is the line, right? He's already, your balls are already melted off. You can't even use your dick. Why is that suddenly the breaking point? I don't know, man. Maybe the guy knew that, you know, if he finally confessed, Rich was just going to kill him anyway. I mean, that is actually what happened. Once Rich and his accomplices tracked down Sammy, uh, found the truck, bring Sammy back to the barn, old Roasted Nuts' farm, you know, they put a bullet in both their heads. You know, at this point, for old, for old hot balls, old fire sack, old, old steaming scrote, it's probably mercy killing. All right. Well, this next murder isn't, isn't brutal in its method, but it's, it's especially savage in its choice of victim. Uh, Rich had been working with a notorious mafia gangster by the name of Roy DeMeo, a dude who was no stranger to murder at all. He'd already assembled a team of hitmen known as the DeMeo crew, uh, who become infamous for their brutality and the volume of murders they commit, supposedly killing over 100 people between 73 and 83. But he hadn't hired Rich yet, hadn't hired him for a murder yet. So he just, he just heard rumors, you know. He, he had been working with Rich, working with him regarding some pornography distribution. Uh, for years, Rich uh, worked with a group of guys who were the main porn distributors on the East Coast. That's where he made a lot of his money. They were, uh, you know, distributing legal porn, but then also a lot of stuff that was not legal. You know, st- stuff that had girls that weren't quite 18. Uh, a lot of stuff with uh, women and animals. Yep, all kinds of bestiality. Uh, something else I didn't know about the Iceman before this week. The dude apparently uh, didn't care about porn. Uh, he had a strange moral code, and while he was clearly uh, not opposed to murder, he, al- he also had no interest in porn, prostitutes, strippers. He was always faithful to whoever he dated. There was just just money to him. Uh, anyway, Roy, Roy DeMeo, he wants Rich to prove that he can kill anyone Roy wants him to kill. No questions asked. So he takes Rich along for a drive. Some of the other members of the murder crew. And then I guess they were at an intersection when uh, Roy sees this guy, just some random dude, some random guy walking his dog, getting ready to cross the intersection. You know, they're stopped waiting on a red light. No one else is around. He points to the guy and just says, cap him. And Rich is like, here? Now? Roy tells him to do it. And he stepped out of the car, walked up behind the guy, shot him in the back of the head, just stepped back in the car, and they just drove off like it was fucking nothing. This wasn't some guy who owed mob money. This wasn't some guy who stole from the mob. It wasn't some idiot who tried to, you know, make some money uh, on a fucking barn hijack. It wasn't some guy who bothered Rich or a member of Rich's family. Not a guy who hassled any of these guys in any way. Just some random human being, possibly father, possibly somebody's boyfriend or husband, definitely somebody's son. Life taken just so Rich could prove to somebody else that he was a good guy to hire for killing other people. What a piece of shit. All these guys, just pieces of shit. All of them monsters. His dad Stanley was a monster. Uh, Rich was even worse. All right, back to brutality. This next method of murder was apparently Richard's favorite. He claims to have done this several times. Uh, he claims to have found a bunch of rats one day in one of those caves in the woods of Buck County. He says he dropped off some meat once to see how fast they'd kind of come out from their hiding places and go through it. And he, and he just kind of like conditioned them. he just feed them sometimes and get them used to coming out to kind of like this open space in the cave and, and eat whatever he put out there. And well, he figured out eventually these rats would eat a person. And this next victim is one of these people. Uh, some mob boss didn't like uh, who her daughter was dating, didn't like his intentions, thought he was too old for her, was just out to get some ass, and then off to, off to you know, bang the next girl. And he confronts this dude, this dude in his early 20s, asks what his intentions are. The guy's like, says he just wants to have some fun. Well, this was enough for this mob boss to want this guy dead. So he hires Richard to kill him, says he wants to make sure the guy suffers before he dies. These people are fucking psychopaths, all of them. So Rich kidnaps this young dude, ties him up, takes him to Buck County, 
strips him down, ties him to a chair, and then he decides to try something new. He takes some thin rawhide strips. He'd, he'd soaked, got them you know, real wet, and then he ties them around the guy's forehead, his arms, his balls. Uh, if you don't know anything about rawhide, most people, I think, so associated with their, like, their like dog's chew toys. You get those little rawhide chew toys you can get, which actually is not supposed to be not very good for him. But anyway, rawhide constricts as it dries. And so he knows this. He puts them on wet and then just lets them start drying, and they just keep tightening and tightening and tightening. They cut into the skin of his arms and forehead so much that, you know, draw blood. They're nearly popping his bright red now testicles, right? He then takes Polaroid photos of the guy suffering so he can show the mob boss. And then the rats start smelling the blood bleeding from this guy. They start hearing his screams of you know, pain, and, they, and they're curious. They start coming out there to check things out. And then, you know, and then they start getting a little more curious, start getting closer to him, and then eventually they, they start taking little nibbles. And they start taking little bites, and then more rats come. And they start climbing all over this guy in his chair, covering him, just taking more and more bites, just fucking chewing his face off, everything. Richard comes back two days later with just a gnawed skeleton tied to a chair. Fuck, man. <laughs> Again, if this is true, and I don't, I don't know why later in prison he would be making this stuff up. I, I don't know. Jesus Christ, man. Eating to, he called this ex- method of execution death from a thousand bites. This guy and Vlad the Impaler would have been, you know, good bosom buddies. Would have had serious man crushes on one another. What the fuck? This guy was fed to rats just because he was a normal 20-something dude. Wanted to fool around with his girlfriend without intending to marry her. My God. Well, Rich wasn't opposed to an extremely quick death either. He seemed to love to play with different murder techniques, like uh, kind of like a chef experiments with different ingredients to make the perfect meal. Uh, Iceman liked to play with different murder methods to, to build the perfect kill for the perfect situation. Strangely, if, if more people took as much pride in their jobs as the Iceman took uh, pride in murder, the world would actually be a much better place. Uh, an L.A. porn shop manager had been uh, taking several of Rich's porn shipments but was not paying for them. He's way behind on payments, and, he, and then suddenly he stops returning Rich's calls, stops answering the phone. So Rich flies out to Los Angeles from New Jersey, find out what the guy's deal was, you know, shows up, walks in there, asks him where his money is. And the guy tells him, you know, like, I don't have it. And he's like, well, you got, you got to pay me my money. And the guy's like, you'll get it in a month. And Rich is like, that's not our agreement. And the guy says, it is now. And just like that, with that moment of disrespect, uh, he signed his own death warrant. Uh, Rich then snuck a pin out of a grenade he'd apparently been holding down beneath the counter uh, where the porn shop owner couldn't see it and then just tosses the pin at the guy. And when the guy's like, what is this? Rich Rich says, it's a surprise. Then tosses him the grenade as he kind of like hurries out of the shop and then he fucking blows the guy to pieces, blows up his shop. And then he just walks to his rental car, drives back to the airport and flies back home. How weird is that? He'd be sitting in a first-class seat because apparently he always flew first-class because it made him feel important. He's on a cross-country flight hours after blowing up some porn shop owner with a grenade. Probably sitting next to some traveling businessman, you know, some upper-level executive maybe. I wonder if, like, you know, uh, uh, when making inevitable small talk, he was ever tempted just to tell the truth and just scare the fuck out of people. Just, uh, uh, yeah, pharmaceutical sales. That's, uh, that's how I make my money. Uh, it's not bad, man. It's a nice, nice racket. What do, you, what, what do you do? Well, I've been dealing a lot of porn, but I, I also got my hands on a little of this and a little of that. Uh, uh, murder's what I enjoy the most. Love a good, love a good murder. Good money and murder. <laughs> uh, okay, no, no, really. What do you do? Well, today I uh, today I blew up some porn shop owner and blew him into fucking oblivion. <laughs> oh man, if you haven't seen a man get blown to shit, you haven't lived. La- last week, last week, oh, last week I fed some punk to some rats after. Wrapping some wet rawhide around his nuts, you know. Uh, hey, stewardess, can I get a whiskey sour? Uh, what do you want to drink, there, friend? Um, uh, um, I'm good. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna close my eyes. Just, I'm gonna try and get some sleep. 
Unfucking believable. And I love with this airport stuff too. This guy who who fly around the country and just bring weapons with him in the in the days before any sort of security checks whatsoever uh at the airport. You you could just fucking your carry-on could be just nothing but guns. It could just be all guns. <laughs> no one checked anything. Oh, unreal. Unreal. Okay, so towards the end of his career, uh, in the few years before he was captured, Rich was apparently a, a very, very, very busy boy when it came to murder. And, and again, a lot of this comes from, you know, prison interviews Richard gave when he, when he knew he'd never be a free man again. A lot of these murders have, you know, have never been verified by the police. However, there, was, uh, there is no doubt he was a mafia-connected hitman, and, and there's also, uh, you know, uh, no reason to use substantial amounts of taxpayer money to try and verify all these cases. And uh, Richard was in a position to, you know— come across a lot of contracted killings because he wasn't Italian. That's why he was able to do all these murders too. Not being Italian, uh, it was basically impossible for him to become a made man and, you know, and become part of a mafia family. Because sometimes these hit guys, when they're Italian, they become part of a family and now they now they work for that family. They don't, well, Rich just worked for everybody, you know, because he wasn't connected to any one particular family. He, he could basically just be an independent murder contractor and work for whoever felt like hiring him. I mean, of course, if he killed a member of a family that he'd done work for and then they found out about it, uh, there's a good chance, you know, a hit could be put out on him, but he was good enough at covering his tracks. That never happened because he actually did that several times, uh, according to, uh, again, interviews. Allegedly, in one particularly busy month, he killed 15 men, all contracted killings, and he killed them in the same warehouse. Uh, he, he was an up-close and uh, personal kind of killer. That's what he, he was in, into at this time. He was into, into a phase of wanting to be right up close and personal, and he decided just to beat these guys to death. And he'd hit them with crowbars, hammers, pipes. Tying to chairs, slam a screwdriver in their backs to sever their spine, leaving them paralyzed but still alive. Jesus, man. The term daddy issues, you know, that gets thrown around a lot with women, but Rich clearly had daddy issues of his own. A little bit of untrained armchair therapy here, but but he never seemed to uh, psychologically recover from all those early beatings from his dad, did he? Right? When, you, when you watch him in documentary interviews, you know, there were several done on him. He, t- he talks about killing guys who reminded him of his father. Talked about how angry bullies and loudmouths, people like his father, made him. Feeling disrespected, feeling judged comes up a lot. His father disrespected and judged him. You know, I, I just feel like especially considering, you know, while he would abuse women, he wouldn't kill them. Uh, but how he would kill any man, he was just symbolically killing his father over and over again. You know, he just spent so much of his childhood feeling powerless, you know, to the constant violence that he overcompensated and decided he'd overcome his early years of violence by embracing it and becoming about as violent as you can get as an adult. Strangely, though, again, he never killed his dad, man. And, and again, he talked later about regretting that. I do think it's strange when a serial killer's uh, motivation to kill is clearly inspired by one particular person, and then they just never kill that person. Uh, a whole bunch of strangers just have to die instead. Well, <laughs> another man was taken to that rat cave, uh, tied to a chair. And uh, in another uh, incident of torture, he was uh, forced to listen to I keep forgetting I'm not in love anymore. I keep forgetting things will never be the same again. I keep forgetting I'm not in love anymore. Michael motherfucking McDonald singing one song on repeat for seven straight goddamn days. And then when a week had passed, Rich dipped the man's nuts in some ground beef and fucking honey and unleashed Bojangles into the cave. Who hadn't eaten in four days? No, of course not. Our sweet time suck mascot Bojangles, that beloved three-legged one-eyed pipple, would never work with a sadistic creep like the Iceman. I don't. I don't think he probably. He might. He probably wouldn't though. Been a while since I'm since I McDonald. You guys, you know, you know, wasn't feeling it for a couple episodes. You guys, I, I just figured this was the perfect episode to remind you that you're never safe. You are never safe from being McDonalded. Okay, one more terrifying murder before we pop out of this uh, segment. This, this is the worst one I came across, as bad as these other ones were. If you were on the edge with the other ones, 
you might want to you might want to fast forward a little bit. This is unbelievable. R- Rich had a special disdain for rapists. He hated them more than bullies. And when he got a hold of one, he he pushed himself to new levels of just utter viciousness. Uh, this shit is off the charts. Roy DeMeo gave Rich a contract to kill a man who had beat and raped the 14-year-old daughter of an associate uh, of his down in Miami. Roy wanted proof that the man would suffer immensely. Uh, Rich flew down, waited for the dude to get off work. When he went out to his car, Rich snuck up behind him, stuck a 38 into his back, walked him into a van he'd rented, had him get inside, handcuffed him, stuck a sock in his mouth, uh, drove him to a secluded beach, tormented him on the way there, telling him exactly what he was going to do to him. He's going to kill him. He's going to make him suffer a whole bunch before he dies. And, uh, and now, look, I don't have any sympathy for rapists, but what he did to this guy is uh, just unbelievable, just so inhuman. And uh, he dragged the guy out of a van, tied him to a tree. Dude loved tying people to trees. And then, and then he put on some gloves, took the guy's pants underwear down, and then grabbed the guy's balls. I, I feel like at this point you have to know if you're the guy with your balls in Richard Kuklinski's giant hands, nothing good's about to happen. Like best case, uh, Richard squeezes your balls real hard. Uh, I think that's a reasonable best-case scenario in this situation. You get a firm ball, ball squeeze. Makes your insides feel like they're turning upside down into jelly. Uh, worst case, he rips your balls clean off. Well, uh, Rich goes for worst case. Straight to worst case. He pulls uh, uh, down with those giant Polish bear claws of his and literally rips the man's balls off. And that's just the opening act for the show he's putting on that night. He, uh, he then shows the man uh, the good dude's own balls. He tosses them aside, takes a break from the torture. You know, t- taking in the light of the moon, listening to the waves hit the beach. Uh, he wanted to let the pain really sink in for this guy. And then round two, he uh, takes out his knife and he cuts the guy's dick off. Then he shows the guy's dick to him. Then he puts it in a plastic bag to give to Roy later so he can prove to DeMeo, you know, uh, and DeMeo can show it to the associates that the guy definitely suffered. Oh, God, did he suffer. Then as bad as this already is, it gets even worse. He takes his knife. This, this made me oh, just sick to my stomach even more than the other things I've said. And, and he starts filleting off. Little random bits of flesh from around the dude's body, just cutting off a little chunk here, cutting off a little chunk there, you know, and then before the guy can bleed to death, he goes back to the van, grabs a big bag of kosher salt he'd saved for this occasion. I don't know why it was kosher, but that detail was in the, the stuff I read, so I, so I included it. I don't know if he was like, if the guy was like, hey, man, do you, uh, do you have, will the salt do? Oh, no, 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 I, I need some, uh, I, don't, I need some kosher salt. Can't be dirty. I need some kosher salt. Uh, well, he really planned this out. Uh, he literally rubs salt in all of the guy's wounds fucking a the guy must have just explosions of legendary pain like I don't, I don't even know what you could do to inflict more pain on someone than that well rich did know still not done still not done splits open the guy's stomach lets his intestines fall out and then i and then i guess somehow this guy is still alive uh he unties him from the from the tree he puts a life jacket on him god he loved tying people to trees didn't he? And, and and just pushes him out to sea while the tide is going out confident the tiger sharks in the area are gonna you know be drawn in by all the blood and just, you know, fucking finishing him off. And even if they don't, you know, he's just going to die. He's just going to drown anyway. And then he just left, head back to Jersey, you know, hands the dude's dick to DeMeo, collects his money, goes home and probably plays, I don't know, Battleship or some shit with his wife and kids. And that, time suckers, is some hellacious, super scary stuff. Super scary stuff. Okay. Uh, when we left the timeline to, to delve into the hell that Rich inflicted on his victims, uh, the year was 1955, and Rich had just abandoned his family after cutting off his wife's nipples. Motherfucker, that is a horrible sentence. Uh, 1961, fast, fast forward there, and 26-year-old Richard Kuklinski, uh, who would estimate later he'd already killed uh, over 50 men by that time, is working at the Swift Line Trucking Company. A mob associate had gotten him a cushy job there to make a little little money in between murders and other criminal exploits. Young Richard was a big gambler at this time, and, he, and any money he made, he quickly blew in casinos or just overall just dicking around, 
You know, he'd have $100,000 in cash one month and be broke the next. And during one of his kind of broke periods, you know, he takes his trucking job and, uh, and working at this warehouse, you know. He's a big dude. He can load shit. And, uh, and at this job, he meets his next wife, Barbara Padrici. Now, Barbara was 18 and had just started working there as a secretary. He was learning how, uh, how to be an accountant. Rich ran into her at the soda machine one day, flirts with her a little bit, and then they run into each other again at a, at a loading port. And uh, Rich flirts a bit more, and his boss sees this, also her boss. And she, she happened, Barbara, to remind her boss of her, of her boss's daughter. He'd taken a liking to her, uh, not in a sexual way, like in a, in a protective way. And the dude uh, did not like Richard, so he had a good read on people, apparently. And he tells Richard to stay away from her, uh, tells him to not date her, uh, absolutely not. Rich tells him he'll fucking talk or date whoever he wants, so the guy fires him. Uh, tells him to stop by that afternoon to pick up his check and then never come back. Well, Rich decides to kill the guy that night. Uh, but then when he comes back to grab that check, he sees Barbara again. She feels terrible. She'd accidentally gotten him fired, and she asked if uh, he wanted to go out and grab a you know coffee after work. Well, well, that decision uh, saved her boss's life, but also destroyed her own future. Richard fell in love almost immediately with Barbara, and even though her family did not like him, thought he was too old for her, you know, she's just 18, uh, he decided that he had to have her. Well, they took things slow. First, Barbara was a virgin, intends, uh, intended to stay that way until marriage. Uh, they went on on various dates, you know, almost most of kind of like a platonic vibe. But, you know, Barbara thought he was okay, but she wasn't that interested. You know, she's 18. She wants to date other boys well. She wanted to date somebody closer to her own age. Uh, she, she, she did like how Richard brought her, like, flowers and stuff. No other boy had ever done that. But she did not like how he would just show up at her house uninvited or just show up at her job uh, uninvited to, like, walk her home when her shift was over. Big red flag there, ladies, and, and gay men, you know. Uh, a dude showing up at your house uninvited, uh, you know, or, or showing up to your job uninvited early in the relationship, not once, but multiple times, not romantic. That's fucking psychotic. Oh, he's so romantic. He just cares. No, he's damaged. He's a lunatic. And then eventually, uh, when he just kept coming around and around and around, Barbara decided it was too much and tells him one day that she'd like to see other people. And she's just not interested in pursuing this. Uh, Iceman does not take that well. Uh, as she's telling him this in the car, he slipped his arm around behind her and then suddenly she feels a prick on her shoulder and then she looks down and sees a drop of blood, realizes, uh, he just kind of casually stabbed her a little bit. Just a little warning stab, you know, st- snuck a knife uh, blade back there and, uh, cut her a little bit. And she goes nuts, you know, obviously she freaks out and she's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, what kind of crazy person does something like this? I mean, God, if only she knew who he really was. Uh, Richard then tells her in no uncertain terms that if she leaves him, he'll kill her entire family. He'll kill everyone he loves. Or everyone, everyone he loves, everyone she loves. And then he beats the shit out of her in the car. Beats her unconscious. When she finally comes to, he acts like nothing's happened. You know, like all's good. Like, well, settle that. Now, good thing we can move on. You know, every once in a while you have a bump in the road, but you smooth it out, you know, with a good beating. And, uh, you know, he reminds her that he's going to kill her entire family. You know, also tells her that he, that he loves her. And, uh, and <laughs> lets her out of the car. And again, late, this is, not, this is not funny. It's just so ridiculous. Ladies and gay men, uh, not a red flag when something like this happens. It's a fucking death threat. It's a fucking death threat. This is when you go to the police. This is when you go to the, you know, I don't care uh, that this was the Iceman. If she would have gone to the police, I don't actually think he would have killed her because he would be a prime suspect. He would have been pissed off, but he would have been prime. And that wasn't his style. You know, he killed random dudes. He had altercations with him bars, you know, or ran into an alley or people look like his dad. But, but, you know, he didn't, he wouldn't, I, I don't, I really don't think he would have killed her or her female relatives. Uh, I don't think so. But, you know, he, he, he was just, he was never the prime suspect in any of his murders for almost three decades. You know, he was, he was only tied to, to five killings at the end of his criminal career. He was, he was pretty good at, uh, you know, not killing people that he had obvious, obvious connection to. And, but you know what? I, I, I still think, though, that's a risk you have to take. You know, never let someone threaten you into a relationship. Odds are 
you know, going to the police, turning them in is the safest thing you can do for yourself and the people around you. You know, or or if you try to get the police involved and, and they're not helping, well, I think you do what you need to do then. I'm not saying you poison them to death. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I can't legally say that you should poison them to death. But I just I can't say that you should do what you need to do to protect yourself. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that you should invite them to go for a hike, where there's a, a nice spot to stand on that's kind of slippery on the edge of a high cliff, you know, where the fall would be enough to definitely you know kill you. I'm not saying you you know you get them to look at that and then push them off. I, I'm not gonna condone that. But again, uh, you do what you need to do to protect yourself. Well, okay. After after briefly fleeing to Florida in uh, in 1961 to get away from Richard to go live with her father who was living down there. Uh, Richard eventually shows up, uh, shows up on her door there as well. You know, Barbara finally accepts he's, he's just never going to give up and, uh, and they, you know, that he might actually kill her or kill her family and they end up getting married. Uh, they get married on September 8th, 1961. And, and, and I should note, she didn't stay with him completely out of fear. She would later say she was married to two men, good, rich, and bad, rich. Good, rich was a perfect gentleman who would buy her flowers, take her shopping, get her anything she wanted open the car door for her, write her letters, spoil the kids they'd have together, take her out to nice dinner, surprise her with gifts, make love to her, all that. Bad Rich would slap her around, both private and public, uh, slap her in front of the kids. Bad Rich would, would rape her if she didn't want to have sex. Bad Rich was a terrifying fucking monster who was not only violent but uh, terrifyingly strong. That kept coming up in research. The dude was, you know, 6'5", and again, and by the time he was in his 30s, he's damn near 300 pounds. I guess he just had, like, gorilla strength, especially when he got mad. Like, Barbara would say uh, she witnessed him once during an argument just take a marble marble coffee table, a, a big one, they had in their living room. The two large moving men had struggled to get in there, and he just, <laughs> he just fucking picked it up and threw it through the living room window. That's terrifying. Scary dude. Uh, okay, March 27th, 1964, uh, Rich and Barbara have their first child, a daughter, Merrick. Born after the couple had, had three miscarriages. At least one of the miscarriages was due to, to Rich's violence, specifically. He beat the shit out of Barbara, punched her in the stomach when she's five months pregnant. Uh, if you watch the Michael Shannon film about the Iceman, simply called The Iceman, uh, I think the movie took it way too, way too easy on, on, uh, on you know, the character of Richard Kuglicki, about, like They tried to paint a picture of him being a, a murderous sociopath who was also a loving family man at home, and that's really not true. You know, he put on a good front. You know, neighbors thought he was a nice guy. You know, and he was unusual in that he did, you know, tons of bad shit, but apparently never cheated on Barbara. I'm sure she never cheated on him, especially if he told her that nipple story. Holy shit. Uh, he didn't do drugs. He never physically beat the kids, but he, but he wasn't a good dude. He's a fucked up psychopath. Uh, he desperately wanted some kind of Norman Rockwell type tranquil family life, the family life he never had growing up. And he, and he kind of created it for himself, but he didn't create it, you know, through love. He created it through intimidation and terror. Well, little Merrick, his firstborn, would be his favorite child, and, and actually the only person who, who wouldn't have a bad thing to say about her dad later after he went to prison. Uh, she was in the hospital a lot growing up, and Rich was uh, very sensitive to, to, towards her, always there by her side, holding her hand, gently petting her forehead, sleeping in the hospital room, you know, when she had to stay overnight. He'd tell Merrick about his horrible childhood but, but you know, that he had, but not really talk about it with his other family members. He also told her, though, that if something bad happened, he may have to kill the whole family. But if he did have to do that, that she would be the hardest uh, person to kill. Because he loved her the most. And, and she seemed to uh, somehow understand that. What, what a number he did on her little brain. That's, that's not that bad, guys. That's, I know, look, I know he's killed a lot of people. I, but, mo but most of them were bad, you know? Yeah, I, I know he beat up mom a lot, but to be fair, she was pretty lippy. You know? I mean, yeah, I mean, he said there could be a situation where he'd have to kill all of us, but he, but he said it'd be hard. He said it would be super hard, and he said he would he'd, he'd be it was the hardest thing to kill me because he loved me the most. Daddy loves me. I'm a lucky girl. Wow. Uh, April 21st, 1965, uh, the Kuklinskis have their second child, daughter Chris, and then on January 13th, 1969, they welcome their third and final child, son Dwayne. 
Richard, uh, not happy to have a boy. He felt that a, that a son would vie for attention from Barbara. He felt threatened by his son. Uh, but he never beat Dwayne or, or the other two kids he had with Barbara. For, for a beaten woman, Barbara was uh, no wallflower. Uh, she did tell Rich in no uncertain terms that if he started beating the kids, she would kill him in his sleep. And I guess he, uh, he believed that. So he never did. Uh, December 17th, 1986. Let's fast forward all the way there. Rich is finally arrested for all the murders. He's arrested, well, not for all the murders. He's, he's arrested for five of them. He's arrested for multiple murders. And then he would never get out of prison again. Uh, Merrick is 22 at this point. Chris is 21. Dwayne is 17, finishing high school. Can you only imagine the stares he got in the halls, you know, like on December 18th? After his dad is suddenly, you know, front page national news as a brutal murderer. Well, all the other murders I, I, I talked about, you know, the ones that he, he didn't get charged for, most of them I, I, ran, I read about in a book called The Iceman Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer. That was my primary source uh, for today's episode. And I'm going to be honest, kind of a tedious read. It's 500 pages, uh, just over, I think, a few over 500 pages in the paperback. And, and it spends about 30 pages on his childhood, which I found very interesting. Very fascinating. And then about 400 pages on just murder after murder after murder after murder. You know, like after a while, it's like, all right, now fucking, I get it. He's confessed to killing a lot of people. I, I get it. Uh, he killed people on solo murder contracts given to him from like Roy DeMeo and a variety of other mobsters. He completed contracts from mob associates, as you know now. Sometimes he killed people because he just pissed him off. Sometimes he killed people, you know, working in a group. You know, for a while he had an interesting relationship with another contract killer named Robert Prongay, a.k.a. Mr. Softy, a uh, guy who showed up in the Michael Shannon movie, guy who drove a Mr. Softy ice cream truck. He was also an independent murder-for-hire contractor. Mr. Softy knew a lot about explosives and poison, and Richard supposedly learned a lot about how to use, like, cyanide for Mr. Softy, uh, a method that would become one of his favorite ways of killing people and a, and a method that would uh, help eventually get him caught. And then when Mr. Softy asked Richard to kill his family for him because he was afraid they could lead to his arrest, Richard uh, shot him to death. You don't, you don't kill kids, man. Supposedly, this prong, prongay was uh, especially nuts and was also considering dumping a massive amount of uh, rice and poison into a local reservoir to fulfill a murder contract around that time, you know, because the whole family he was hired to kill would, would be poisoned. Uh, also, uh, hundreds of other people would be poisoned. If that is true, I guess the Iceman saved hundreds of lives by putting him down. So, you know, real fucking hero. And again, almost all of this comes from Rich's confessions, you know, hours and hours of confessions he gave in documentaries and confessions he gave, you know, for that book. Uh, many of these confessions would be contested. Uh, you can go online and find a ton of the Iceman lies type of, you know, uh, website stuff types of, you know, pages out there, but none of the sources claiming he lied are any more credible than him claiming that, you know, they were true. You know, it's not like law enforcement officers came forward to say, no way, uh-uh, never did any of that. You know, he claimed to have eventually killed Roy DeMeo, but now there's evidence that, you know, maybe he didn't do that. I, I personally don't give a shit. If the guy did 10% of what he claimed to have done, still an infamous, uh, darkly fascinating psychopath. And hopefully we can study these people again to figure out, like, how do we how do we prevent more of these people from existing? Uh, okay, so let's hop out of this timeline and examine the killings he was convicted of, the ones that got him arrested, the ones we know for sure he was involved in. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. A string of New Jersey burglaries in 1981 is what would eventually lead to Rich's arrest. Guy gets caught by the owner in a burglary uh, that matches the style of other burglaries, and, uh, and then the guy starts talking at jail, and a detective named Pat Kane gets involved in the interrogation. And then this guy, to get himself out of some prison time, he agrees to take Detective Kane to all the houses the gang had burglarized, ends up showing him 43 total houses, and he also rats out his accomplices, Danny Deppner, Gary Smith, Percy House, and a guy he knew only as Big Rich. 
Well, Detective Kane finds and arrests Percy House, but can't find the other dudes. He does uh, stakeouts for weeks, and they, they just don't show up. But then Danny Deppner's wife shows up at the police station and is hysterical. She says that Danny had contacted her and that uh, he's afraid for his life. He says that Big Rich is going to kill them all, that the dude is the devil, he's a murderer. And then she gives Detective Kane his full name, and it's Richard Kuklinski. And then she tells him that Rich has already killed Gary Smith. Uh, she said, you know, he took all the guys to a hotel after Percy got arrested and told him to stay put. Well, though, Gary wanted to go sneak out and visit his daughter, and then he came back, but Rich finds out, and after he finds out, he brings the guy some hamburgers. And seconds after Gary starts eating his hamburger, starts having a lot of trouble breathing. Starts turning blue, falls in the ground, and then Rich has uh, Danny, you know, finish him off with some strangulation. And Danny, I guess, obeys. And then detectives find Gary's body a little while after that. And instead of disposing it like he had claimed to normally do, Rich and Danny just pushed the body under the bed in the York Motel in North Bergen, New Jersey. And by the time it was found, 12 other guests had slept above the body. How creepy is that? Ugh. Oh, my God. Detective Kane then also found out that Rich had called the hotel shortly after Danny and Gary had checked in. So, a little sloppy on Rich's part. Then in May of 1983, Danny Deppner's body is found in a wooded area of West Milford, New Jersey. He'd been shot in the head, also possibly strangled. Detective Kane knew Rich was behind it, but couldn't link him to the crime conclusively uh, enough to get a warrant. Kane realizes they're going to need an undercover cop to get, you know, the evidence they need to nail this guy. You know, to just, you know, actually catch him, you know, uh, planning something for sure. And then uh, he meets uh, Dominic uh, Prolifrone, a uh, 39-year-old undercover agent with a history of infiltrating East Coast Mafia families who worked for – and this guy worked for the ATF. Well, Kane also got uh, uh, Percy House, who was still in jail for the burglaries he did with Rich to agree to be a snitch and wear a wire to incriminate a bigger fish, Phil Sol- uh, Salamine, a man they needed to get Richard. See, Phil was a guy who seemed to know all the criminals in North Jersey. He had a hangout spot called The Store where these guys would come. They'd you know, hear, get, you know, assign new jobs, get contracts, play high-stakes poker games, shoot the shit, you know, like a gangster hideout. Phil knew Richard. And uh, Richard uh, had gotten jobs from Phil and also gotten weapons. And the plan was fulfilled to vouch for undercover agent Dominic, going by Dominic uh, Provenzano now, uh, you know, act like they went way back, connect Dominic to Rich. And then the opportunity came up with uh, uh, when Rich went to Phil to get some cyanide. He, you know, he, he'd killed his previous cyanide contra- uh, contractor or supplier, I guess, and now he needed a new guy. That's one of the problems, you know, with constantly murdering the people you work with. You know, later, you don't need a favor, you can't, you know, you can't get it because they're dead because you killed them. Uh, Dominic and Phil meet up. End up meeting several times. Dominic says he, he had a lead on a big old batch of pharmaceutical-grade cyanide. And in the course of several conversations, Rich straight up admits to uh, having used cyanide in the past to kill people, but he doesn't give names. Detective Kane and the others working on the case, they, they need more proof. They want more proof that he's a killer. They want him to buy what he thinks is cyanide from, uh, from Dominic and try to use it. And then in a big sting, numerous plainclothes officers witness Rich buying what he thinks is cyanide from Dominic with the verbal intent to use it to kill someone. Uh, this, you know, this kid that Dominic's been saying has been, he's been selling coke to, and he's a problem, he wants him gone, Rich is like, no problem, and they, uh, they, they arrest Rich shortly after that, right outside his home, and apparently it takes eight officers to hold this bull of a man down, takes four guys to get his hands behind his back, and they had to use leg shackles instead of handcuffs to restrain him, because his big-ass murder wrists are so thick. And when it was all said and done, uh, Rich is convicted in the murders of Gary Smith, Danny Deppner, Louis Maskey, George Maliband, and Peter Calabro. Uh, George Malibrand of Huntington, Pennsylvania, was killed January 31st, 1980, after he met with Mr. Kuklinski to sell several videotapes, and his body was found several days later, stuffed in a 55-gallon drum. Louis Maskey was last seen in July 1991 on his way to videotape, uh, uh, like a videotape business deal with Mr. Kuklinski. He had 
apparently $95,000 hidden in the door panel of his van. 15 months later, Mr. Maskey's partially decomposed body is found in Orangetown, New York, shot in the head, wrapped in several plastic bags. Authorities said the body had been stored in a freezer. And that's how he got the name from uh, the Iceman, you know, as far as the media was concerned. Uh, Kuklinski fired a shotgun at Detective Calibro's head as the officer eased his Honda Civic through a snowstorm way back in March 14, 1980. And he ends up getting convicted for, uh, for all these, like three separate trials. After these convictions, uh, he would spend the rest of his life in jail. And then his health uh, starts to fail in October 2005 after 17 years in prison. He's diagnosed with a rare and incurable inflammation of the blood vessels, transferred to a secure wing at St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. And then check this out. Uh, he'd asked doctors to make sure they revived him if he went in some kind of cardiac arrest. But, you know, he's clearly afraid of dying. Uh, clearly afraid of dying. But his wife, Barbara, uh, who he'd given power of attorney to previously, had signed a do not resuscitate order on him. Well, a week before his death, the hospital ca- calls Barbara to ask if she wishes to rescind the instructions for the do not resuscitate because he wants him to take it back. She says no. And then he dies at age 70 on March 5th, 2006. Kind of a nice little last victory for Barb, you know? Nope, dude, not letting you live a day longer than I have to. And then the Iceman is no more. Now let's take one more look at this cold-blooded son of a bitch with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, according to the Iceman, he watched his father, Stanley Kuklinski, literally beat his older brother, Florian, to death when he was five years old. You might not become a serial killer after seeing, you know, some shit like that, uh, but if you don't want to seriously increase the odds that you're going to raise a serial killer or a murderer, you, you probably should not murder in front of your kids. And you especially shouldn't murder one of your kids in front of another one of your kids. That's kind of parenting 101. Number two, the Iceman had a very strange moral code. He refused to kill women, but he'd shoot a random passerby in the head with a crossbow bolt if the passerby happened to be a man. And he'd mutilate and savagely beat you if you were a woman. But, but, he'd not, but not kill you, you know? He's not a scumbag. Number three, the Iceman claims to have brutalized animals as a child, including setting a dog on fire. If your kid sets a dog on fire, do not think, oh, he's just going through a face. Oh, no, no, this is no face. He's transitioning into becoming a serial killer. Get that diabolical seed of yours into some much-needed crisis counseling. Number four, the Iceman killed men for disrespecting him in a bar, being you know, too pushy when asking him for money. Good reminder. That when you're out there in the world, you're out there in public, man, you, don't really, you really don't know who you're fucking with. So probably best to avoid confrontation. You know, it might feel good in the moment to tell some random dude to go fuck themselves, but if that dude is anything like Richard Kuklinski, uh, it's not going to seem like you made a good decision when your lifeless body is laying in an alley behind the bar with a bullet in the back of your head. Number five, new info. Richard wasn't the only Kuklinski to spend the last years of his life in the Trenton State Prison in Trenton, New Jersey. In September of 1970, Rich's little brother Joseph, then 25, was arrested and then convicted for luring a 12-year-old girl, Pamela Deal, to a roof, sodomizing, strangling, and then throwing her body several stories down to the ground below. Ugh. And then he threw the girl's dog off the roof with her, just for added insult, I guess. Well, the dog, who, who, who broke a leg but survived, kept barking, alerted witnesses to Pamela's body. Joseph was quickly caught, charged, convicted, sentenced. He'd finally die in prison on September 22nd, 2003. And then in a twist of fitting justice, Joseph would, over the years, have several surgeries to repair his rectum, which had been torn numerous times from brutal and frequent sodomizing. Hard to feel bad for him after he did what he did. Really kind of poetic, really, you know? And despite staying uh, uh, in the same prison for years, the two brothers never hung out and rarely spoke. Uh, Rich was disgusted by his rapist child, you know, killing brother because, you know, you know he, was, he was just so much morally superior to him. Dude had his, his principles. Time suck. Top five takeaways. 
So that is the Iceman. What a brutal son of a bitch, man. What a strange dude. He had such an odd moral code, didn't he? Wouldn't do anything to a child other than, you know, abandon his first two kids. W- wouldn't kill a woman, but would savagely beat him. Wouldn't, would do anything to a man. Would just do whatever, no matter how innocent the guy was. He also distributed hardcore pornography. I'm talking bestiality hardcore for years and years. But then was faithful in relationships and looked down on women who posed nude. Uh, they discussed him to the end, in fact. Uh, uh, women would send him letters in prison proclaiming their love for him right up until he died. And a lot of these women would also uh, include naked photos of themselves and put those in the letters, you know, when they'd send him in prison. And apparently, they grossed him out. He would just throw their pictures in the trash, you know. They disgusted him. He felt that any woman who sends a stranger naked photos is a pig. Well, then what does killing people's sons, husbands, and dads make you? Wow, strange, man. And side note, why do, why do women do that? Why the fuck would you want to try and start a relationship with a convicted murderer? How sick is that? <laughs> you, you are so messed up if that's what you're into. Uh, all right. Hope you enjoyed today's suck subject. Thanks goes to Time Suckers, John Prim, Kyle, Patrick Easel, uh, who's been bugging me for months uh, for some Iceman suck, and anyone else I may have missed. And, uh, and hopefully the sound is uh, good uh, this week. I, I've had to record on the road again. I tried getting out of the hotel that I was at, and I went to the comedy club. I'm in the green room at the Omaha Funny Bone. Uh, I thought I'd have it to myself. I do have the room to myself, but there's other workers around. They're quite noisy. I hear them in my headphones. Hopefully it's not distracting for you. Uh, I found the best place I could this week. And, uh, yeah, again, whenever possible, I, I do this in the home studio. But sometimes it's just not possible. Uh, next Monday, the, the time suck is going to be 9-11 because it is 9-11 this coming Monday. Uh, we're going to look back at what happened on that fateful day, you know, the infamous 9-11, who did it, uh, why they claimed to do it, and the incredible heroics of the brave men and women who saved lives and risked their lives that day, many of whom died, many of whom sacrificed their lives doing so. And we'll also take a peek at conspiracy theories that still surround this event. I I actually don't know much about it, don't know much about the conspiracies uh, at all, Uh, but I am interested in looking into it and and finding out, and I'm interested in uh, reading some uh, inspiring tales of real, real heroism. Uh, Also, thanks to you time suckers who've been rocking that new time suck tea, that fourth generation. Right, and to those uh, wearing the first three generations of tees, the new Time Suck hats. I'm so excited. Uh, there's going to be two styles uh, with two different color options with each to choose from. So really, four different hats. So fucking excited to get these. They should be in the store this coming Monday, uh, according to the FedEx stuff. So thanks to those of you also who support the show by using that Amazon button on TimeSuckPodcast.com to do your shopping on Amazon as well. And, uh, and also at the website, you can link over to the tour date, tour dates, find out where I'm going to be. And if you follow Time Suck on Instagram, which you should, uh, you can vote on the next bonus episode. It's coming up real fast. You guys have been rating away, and I appreciate it. Less than 20 iTunes reviews away from the ninth 900 review episode. The topic that gets the most comments under the bonus episode post on Instagram. Uh, the Instagram handle is Time Suck Podcast. Uh, before midnight Pacific time this Sunday, September 10th, you have to get them in before then, will be the next bonus episode, whatever gets the most. And uh, and that bonus episode will probably, based on current reviews, probably come out around Friday, September 15th. And, and this time you get to pick from the following three topics. You can pick the Salem Witch Trials. I think that's going to be interesting as shit. You, you can uh, pick Mothman, that paranormal legend. Or uh, if you haven't had your fill of, of murder after today's episode, the Zodiac Killer. So Salem Witch Trials, Mothman, or the Zodiac Killer. Follow the suck on Instagram to vote for that. And again, tickets still on sale. Not many left, though. So, so please don't just think you can show up at the door and get in. Uh, at the Melrose Improv, Thursday, October 5th, for the first ever live Time Suck podcast. And also the 7th, I will be at the same club doing some stand-up. Ticket links in the episode description. And, and again, more shows coming up in a lot of other places. And now if you're wondering why there was no Idiot to the Internet segment, oh, there is. And it's happening right now. Of the internet. 
Okay, today's idiot is not some random YouTuber. Sadly, it's a, it's a time sucker. Or at this point, probably a former time sucker. Look, I, look, I don't mind thoughtful criticism. I really don't, and I get a fair amount of it. I don't share with you guys messages and stuff, and I, and I enjoy it. I really do. Even if it's harsh sometimes, you know, in the moment, I might have to be like, God dang. But then I'll think about it, you know, and I learn a lot from it. Uh, a lot of it really makes me reflect on, you know, what I think about, what I think I know, helps me to evolve, become a better person. Uh, so much so that, yeah, I want, I want to do some more stuff with kind of like community discussions here coming up wholly by the end of the year. And, uh, and I love that Time Suck provides that. <laughs> Again, sorry if you hear noises. It feels like there's just people just throwing shit into walls behind me. <laughs> but uh, some critics are just trolls, right? There, there is nothing constructive in what they do. Some people are just sad, angry, bitter individuals uh, looking to shit on everyone's good time, just poisonous people. And, and, and one of these people recently started listening to The Suck and, and loved it, I guess, until the last episode. And then they tweeted uh, you know, me uh, the following tweet saying, Listen to love every podcast except for the last one. Endless dem and rep switched parties. Horse shit killed me, brah. Okay, so far, no big deal. You have every right to, to not like an episode. Of course you do. Uh, I expect nothing less. But I didn't make up the fact that at one point in history, the, the Democrat Party in the U.S. and the Republican Party uh, had switched ideologies, right? It didn't happen like overnight, but when the Democrats started, you know, they were conservative, and then, and then the Republicans, when they started, they were liberal. That's just, that's just documented historical fact. If you don't know, uh, the Democratic Party evolved from the conservative Democratic-Republican Party of the 1790s. The first contested presidential election was in 1796, and the Democrat-Republican uh, Party nominated the conservative Thomas Jefferson as their first presidential nominee. Party members were anti-federalists who favored state sovereignty, free markets, a decentralized federal government, an originalist interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, and slavery. Pretty conservative. Uh, the Republican Party also experienced significant ideological alterations. Founded in 1854 as a liberal counterweight to the conservative Democratic Party, Republicans opposed the expansion of slavery, supported more money for public education, advocated a more liberal immigration policy, and had other liberal political agendas. This is not speculation. You can look it up. <laughs> and in the KKK episode, I just referenced it. And, and, and I just referenced that Republicans were opposed to slavery, Democrats were in favor of it. I, I didn't editorialize on it. Uh, it was just kind of a side note. You know, I just uh, didn't want people to be confused. Like, why would this party support that and this other party support whatever? I just referenced that it happened. Well, so anyway, I think this guy is confused. And I tweet back just to clarify. I say, horseshit? It's history. Dems used to be conservative. Republicans used to be liberal. And again, I don't understand how this is a point of contention. It's just like saying, yeah, uh, pizza uh, is generally round and a sandwich is generally bread with meat inside. Like, you know, like what is there to fucking argue? Well, this guy goes a little nuts, and he tweets several times. First tweet says, no, lies via 60s and Nixon's South Strat only could win by appealing to racist Southern Dems. Reps did well before. In 1928, 47%, 1952-1956. Second tweet, got more six states. Got about, sorry, got about six states after Brown v. Board, Ed, and enforcing integration. More. Switch D to R, 1964, over Civil Rights Act equals only one D out of 21. Third tweet. Those 20 seats went Republican 20 plus years later. More. Southern Strat allowed Republicans to keep South. Nixon lost. Clinton. Carter. Swept up. Fourth tweet. Reps didn't have a congressional majority until 1940 or 1994, 30 years after Civil Rights Act. If Southern Rednecks left Democrats because racism and Civil Rights Act. Fifth tweet. Why the shit would they wait 30 years to do so 
this one gets insulting. You shitty college attending biatch. Nuts on your face. You're welcome. And then a sixth tweet. Love the podcast, smiley face emoticon. What in the fuck? Do you understand what's happening here? He's now throwing stats at me that may or may not be true. I didn't bother looking them up because they're irrelevant. The, the, he's trying to back up a position in, in an argument we're not having. <laughs> like, like when I talked about Democrats being conservatives and Republicans being liberal, I was referring to the fucking 1860s. Clearly, 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 not the 1960s. What a strange thing to do, right? That's like, hey, brah, remember when you said you're not a big fan of Walmart? Well, I don't appreciate that, motherfucker. I think Target's great. Target does treat us, they, they treat their employees very well, asshole. Target is a nice store. They donate a lot of money to worthy causes. They have the right items at the right prices. Nice, nice try, shitting on Target. What? No I, no, I never was even talking about Target. I just, I was talking about Walmart. Yay, all right, buddy. I heard you the first time. Let me throw a little more knowledge your way. You need to get woke, motherfucker. Despite what you just said, Target does offer 401ks for full-time employees. You can get health and dental. They do have a Starbucks in select locations. So take those nuts on your face, biatch. Uh, I think, I think you need to take your meds. Um, and I love that the dude throws out some idiotic and aggressive insult, but then adds, but love the podcast. Do you? Do you? It feels like you just love being an obnoxious kind of pot stirring asshole. Now, I, I know you're not supposed to feed the trolls. I know that. I know that. But some part of me hopes against all logic and reason that maybe if I just clarified this point of confusion, he'll realize that he is just confused and be like, oh, shit, man, sorry. I misunderstood the argument. So, so I tweet again. I say, great stats. Too bad none apply to your argument. I discussed the ideologies being switched in the 1860s, not the 1960s. Nice try, though. I do realize, by the way, that I was being a little bit of a dick with a nice try, though. Uh, but I feel like it was deserved. Well, he comes back with even more nonsense. He goes, 1860s? Sweet shit. That makes your point more convoluted. Is your source the DNC website? You're saying basically Lincoln was a dem. LOL. Big dog. This is the second tweet. Big dog. I'm not Republican. I think for myself. Good points from everyone else with eye roll gifts and idiot salvos too. Sweet fucking Christ. He's so specific with his nonsense and just so aggressive with it that I actually, I actually second guess myself for a second. I was like, maybe, maybe I did get this wrong. So I read numerous articles about the ideology switch and, and it just verifies the original reference I had. I actually do remember studying in college as well. Apparently my shitty college I went to. So, so I decide to send him just a link to one of the many, 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 many articles. One of the many articles out there about this, a link and nothing more. Uh, spread a little knowledge to someone who clearly needs This was, happened to be a link from livescience.com. I thought they just kind of explained it the quickest. He tweets back. That's your source? Fuck, dude. Next time, do the inverse search of why do stupid people believe the DNR switch never happened? Second tweet. The fact you believe this with no zero research? I like that. No zero research. I don't even know what that means. But now embrace a plurality of genders, i.e. two plus, smacks of intellectual dishonesty. It's like he just um, has like an algorithm where they put big words into sentences, but the sentence doesn't actually make sense. <laughs> and then the third... I was going to troll your research and quip something semi-funny about cons slash liberals, but I, but I see blocking success, but, oh, but like, I, I think he means like cock blocking, but I, cock blocking success isn't my MO. I think it is. And one of them, and then just kisses. Wow, so many questions. I'll never ask this asshole because I blocked him after this. And more on why I blocked him in just a moment. Uh, first, why is the history of a political party's ideology so important to this guy? Again, why does he give a shit? What Democrats and Republicans <laughs> believed in the 19th century. And of all the things, like when he said originally he liked all the episodes until the last one, of, I had to have made way bigger fuck-ups than that. Which, that one's not even a fuck-up. It's just like that's – like, it's like again, it's like the weirdest thing 
to become enraged about. It's like getting mad about like the recipe for chocolate cake. You know, somebody telling you that it, that it used to be different, that the chocolate cake recipes tended to be different 150 years ago than today, and you just flying off the handle. Just no motherfucker. It tasted exactly the same. It tastes exactly the same. That's bullshit. You start punching walls in your apartment, fucking throwing shit around, you know, kicking tables. Chocolate has always tasted the way I wanted chocolate. Just, you know, craziness. And why would he assume that that's the only web article that, that states what I, what I stated? Like, that was the only one I could find. How hard is it for him to Google? He's clearly on the internet a lot. He reminds me of a flat earther, the kind of person who just, like, laughs at all of your sources that are rational, acts like anyone with half a brain who, you know, uh, or acts like anyone with half a brain would just obviously believe the wackle doodle shit, you know, they believe. Just, bruh, bruh, you believe NASA when it comes to the Earth being around? <laughs> okay. So let me get this straight. You believe in college-educated scientists. <laughs> okay. So you, you believe you believe physics professors, all right? You believe, okay, okay. All of them, you believe that what every science professor at every college on Earth has thought for decades? <laughs> okay, bro. All right. Just keep being a moron. Just keep being, just keep putting your head in the ground, right? I'm fucking woke. I believe some shit I read on some dark web conspiracy chat room sites, Okay. Now, here's why I blocked this guy. I went to his Twitter handle, and I, and I, and I read his feed, and it's just so much trolling, like, a, like almost nothing but uh, just a never-ending stream of stuff like, <laughs> shame, 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 pussies, replying to Drudge Report, some, some say, they said. Another one just says, keep your Canadian pie hole shut on American politics and maybe concentrate on MMA to some Ariel Helwani, whoever that is, and fuck this guy to bloody elbow. And another one just, if Afghans understood they lived in Afghanistan, that will be a start. Just a steady stream of nonsensical hate. Just, just tweets where you can tell he clearly feels like some frustrated intellectual. Uh, clearly a very uneducated, frustrated intellectual. Uh, sadly, he appears to be too dumb to even understand how dumb he actually is. When you have a job that puts you in what you do in, in, in a constant forum for public judgment like I do, you do develop a special hatred for trolls. And uh, I've had it long before this guy. This guy is just one of many. And I don't, even, and I don't just get worked up when it's, when it's directed at me. Uh, like, like I can't stand Yelp reviewers who just, you know, constantly leave negative reviews. Like, like if you're a Yelp reviewer and you've left over a hundred reviews, but the average review you leave is less than three stars, you're not a discerning critic with a sophisticated palate. You're a spiteful, hateful, just little fuck of a person who clearly takes great pleasure in taking a dump on the efforts of others to actually create something good in the world instead of just shit on other people's efforts. Right? Man, it's like, if you have somebody like this in your personal life, I also wanted to bring this up you know, because I think these people are, they're obviously around. If you have somebody like this in your real life, someone who consistently just negatively criticizes and just argumentative with everything you do uh, and everything, you know, other people do as well, block them in real life. Like cut them out of your social circle. They need it. They're a cancer. They're a tumor with legs. And if you want to, you know, get or stay healthy, you need to cut them out of your social life, remove them, let them take their psychological abuse elsewhere. They're not someone whose approval you need or should ever want. They're someone who, when they aren't busy, you know, bringing you down, they're busy on the web trying to bring down the rest of the world. Just some true idiot of the internet. Bruh. Idiots of the internet. All right, thanks for listening to that little rant. I never want to come down like that on a listener, but that was too much, man. Just what the fuck? Too much of that shit on the web. So many sad, hateful people out there, you know? Luckily, the overwhelming majority of time suckers seem to be, like, awesome people. I mean, I keep meeting you at shows. Truly, like, you know, uh, just reinvigorate my faith in humanity. Just And thanks for all the uh, the awesome messages 
And uh, you send me, and sorry again, I haven't gotten back to all of them. I, I really, truly wish I, I would. I was up to like five in the morning last night you know, working on this after shows, after two shows at the Omaha Funny Bone. Uh, hopefully when the Time Suck app is completed, uh, I can hire a full-time employee. And then with their help and the help of the amazing Time Sucker volunteers already volunteering their time out of the goodness of their hearts, I can rearrange my life a little bit to uh, add some balance to it and also get back more consistently and, and just stay on top of everything. I just, I am trying I do appreciate it. I know I keep saying that every week, but it's true. I really appreciate the effort you guys make with this. Uh, now let's check in uh, with some awesome Time Suckers in, in today's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. First update comes in from Jake Thomas, who writes, Greetings, Almighty Suckmaster. In your last podcast about the KKK, you talked about how it was bad to put people into groups and judge them based on stereotypes associated with their groups. I strongly agree with this philosophy. However, where should we draw the line? Right? Is it okay to judge individuals who are in the KKK or neo-Nazis and assume that they are just piles of Bojangles as shit? Or should we understand that some of them may not be evil, just extremely ignorant, and work with them to change their worldviews? This is something that I have really been contemplating in my head and would love to hear your thoughts on. Hail Nimrod, Jake. Well, hail Nimrod, Jake. Yes, well, God, man, good question. How do we balance tolerance with judgment? I believe in tolerance within reason, I, and I kind of define that by I'll be tolerant towards you unless you're trying to actively harm me or my family or, or, or basically other people, you know, and then I'll become an extremely intolerant motherfucker. Like the KKK, based on a history of violence and murder towards innocent people, do not, in my opinion, deserve much tolerance, right? They deserve public scorn, ridicule, and contempt for their twisted ideals and if they do act out with violence, they deserve, you know, immediate and extreme punishment. Now, to your point, uh, with the individuals within this group, I do think, you know, you, you try and reach them uh, initially with some questioning, you know, get them to, like, try and face, like, why they think they're hateful, why they think they're racist. You, you, you do, it is good, I think, to make an effort to try and change their minds because there probably are some good people just, just who have been uh, manipulated and just allowed themselves to go down a bad path within those groups, you know. But after a while, you know, if they're just shouting back at you with, you know, vile and hate— uh, I think some mockery and disrespect is in order because, you know, they're not acting in a way deserving of respect. So, you know, I don't think they're entitled to it. It's tough. You know, I do have sympathy for people, you know, again, being manipulated into joining up with a hateful agenda. And, and I don't think they're necessarily evil, but I, but I also think if you consistently don't judge harshly hateful actions, you kind of end up enabling them to continue. You end up kind of silently condoning them. Uh, and that's not good. So that, 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 that's all just my opinion. And I should say that when it comes to judgment and punishment, I am pretty conservative. Sometimes I think I come across as a lot more liberal than I am. I'm very socially liberal in some ways, you know. Like if you want to do something sexually or with drugs, you know, with your as a consenting adult with other consenting adults, I'm all for it. But if you want to hurt, uh, rape, molest, kill, well, then you deserve imprisonment and/or uh, death, in my opinion. Uh, like, like take the argument regarding like child molesters, man. You know, many of these people were molested themselves. You know, they were sexualized at an early age, increases the odds they're going to act out sexually with others that same age later. There's evidence that their brain chemistry may be off, you know, predisposing them to molest. You know, you could argue that it's not entirely their fault. Maybe we should try and like reach them. Maybe we should try and, you know, you know, uh, talk to them and find out what's going on. You know, you could argue that various factors could be taken into account, you know, when you're judging them. However, uh, if you molested or harmed, you know, one of my kids you know, or my wife or something like that, and I was able to get a hold of you before the police did, I'll, I'll put a fucking bullet in your head. I would have no moral qualms about that. I would enjoy watching you die in that situation. You cross a line, in my opinion, that puts you into a category of people no, no longer deserving of tolerance or, frankly, life itself. I think uh, tolerance is a great thing, but I also think that actions have consequences. You know, and in some cases, I believe that consequence is death. And again, 
That's my opinion. I know I've been on uh, a little bit of the outs on that one my whole life. I've, <laughs> I've had that one forever. I've thought about it a lot. I just have never changed on it. Okay. And maybe I'm, I don't know. Maybe I got a tiny bit of psycho in me. Who knows? But that's how I, that's how I think about it. Uh, another one is uh, from Kai Carlson. Another update it says, howdy, Dan, just listening to your KKK time suck. And it was rough even as an African-American, but I do want to pick a bone on one issue. Earlier this year, my National Guard Unit 11322, or I guess the 11,322nd Military Police Company, was activated to protect property in Charlotte, North Carolina, after several Black Lives Matter riots. I personally have been lucky to have lived a fairly race, uh, hate-free life, but during those protests, I had never received such racial hate. Uh, I had another black male actually call me a coon. I, I had to provide medical care for several white citizens who were beat bloody for being white and had a weapon drawn on me by uh, a quote-unquote protester. The Black Lives Matter group I ran into uh, was truly a, a racist and violent organization as, as much as the KKK. The situations uh, we were placed in left a bad taste in our mouths for that particular group. Uh, but enough beating you over the head. I, I want to commend you on taking such a controversial topic in, in, in such a truly open way. I can't think of many people who would come at this with such an open mind. Thank you, Kai. Thank you, man. And and sorry you had what sounds like a seriously shitty day at the protest. Man, man, that's terrible. Uh, and numerous other time suckers also wrote in saying that I that I kind of let the Black Lives Matter protesters off you know, way too easy, pointing out that some of them are also you know calling for the death of all white people. Well, here's my thoughts on it. Uh, I didn't realize that some members of the movement we're doing that kind of stuff. Now, when you go to the Black Lives Matter's website, there is zero anti-white rhetoric, zero, uh, as opposed to the KKK, which is quite literally based, you know, pretty much entirely in racism. So, so I think that the I think that the original essence of the Black Lives Matter movement is a, is a beautiful one. It's it's based in a desire for equality. Unfortunately, some racist assholes have hijacked the movement and twisted it into their own desires for vengeance, and that's despicable. Never okay to want to bring harm, you know, to any and all members of any particular race because you know a few members of that race, you know, uh, did something to you. You know, like you're mad because some white people treated you unfairly. You know, I'm not talking about kindness. I'm talking about like the Black Lives Matter protester. <laughs> you know, uh, I get that. You know, you should be mad. You should be mad. And if you're going to take it out on someone, take it out on a specific individual uh, and or individuals who, who wronged you, not on just innocent bystanders. Okay. Now a great Kurt Cobain update from Time Sucker Jessica Casillas, uh, who sent in the following message. Hello, Master Time Sucker. The most recent bonus episode was awesome. I again wanted to chime in with an update you had during that episode. Another fellow time sucker had updated you about the trials of being on Ritalin as a child, so I wanted to explain why I agree with him regards to those medications. I'm a pharmacy technician, so while in school we have to learn about all of these medications, uh, what a lot of people don't understand is that all of the ADD and ADHD medications are a derivative of meth itself. It's just a lab-made synthetic of the drug. So, of course, it alters the brain, and to some point, they can have uh, a dependency for it. The other thing I learned in my schooling is that there are three categories of people that are not tested on when they do these trials on all FDA-approved medications. One, children. Two, pregnant women. And three, geriatrics. So, since we don't test uh, these three categories, which we shouldn't when any drug is prescribed to any of these categories, no one really knows what the pros and cons towards the medications are until in some cases it's too late. Also, when an ADD or ADHD medication is prescribed to a child, the dosing is sadly really based off guesswork since the test studies were done with grown adults. I understand that some people truly have to be on these medications, but not the multitude of children that have been placed on them, and all of these children who were or have been on those medications may have issues since it's basically altered their brain chemistry while still developing. Uh, 
The medical society probably won't know what the actual effects from these drugs are until the people are grown adults, and by then, sadly, it can be too late. I really wish everyone would really do their homework on all medications prescribed to them before they just started taking it, especially if they f- fall into one of these three categories. I understand the benefits of medications, but working in pharmacies, I've also seen the sad detrimental effects medications have as well. So even if a doctor says that it's FDA-approved, you can still end up being a possible guinea pig Anyways, hail the almighty Nimrod, bow down to Bojangles, and keep on sucking hard, Master Sucker. Well, good shit, Jessica. So good. And again, that was all in reference to uh, me saying that when Kurt Cobain was blasing, blaming his uh, you know, adult drug dependencies on some medication as a kid, that I didn't agree with it, based on a study I found, I've had a bunch of people come back, and so I've changed my opinion. Uh, based on uh, all the stuff that's come, a lot of other emails come in. Uh, yeah, I think I was wrong. I think I was wrong to go along with that. Uh, and, and clearly, it does sound like that really could make you much more likely to be uh, a drug addict when you're older. And, and also, what a dummy I've been. I just realized I've never researched a single medication I've ever taken, ever. I just take it. <laughs> that's some lazy shit. I'm the worst when it comes to taking care of my health, my physical health. Oh, man. Need to remedy that. So so research your drugs, time suckers. I'm going to start doing that too. Just you know, don't take whatever you're handed. You're like uh, Dr. Steve Rule right now, that great character, Adult Swim, you know, for your health. Uh, but seriously, know your drugs. Okay, next update is from uh, Time Sucker Vanessa Toner regarding MK Ultra. Hey, Dan, I was listening to the MK, uh, MK Ultra episode tonight and just wanted to give some insight on ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, aka shock therapy. I am bipolar and have lived in a downward spiral for the past five plus years, literally seeing my life dissolve in front of my eyes. Last year, my mental health doctors found ECT necessary as a last resort. I wanted nothing more than to die and spend all of my time and spent all of my time devising ways of accomplishing that. I underwent 14 sessions of ECT at Providence and Spokane, and a year later, I can vouch for its effectiveness. Not as a quick fix, but over time has helped manage my bipolar symptoms. But like you touched on, it most definitely does cause amnesia. Probably 90% of 2016, I have absolutely no recollection of, and only know that certain things even happen by looking at photos and texts on my phone. It is not a miracle cure or just another form of... or as just another form of treatment, but as a last resort in terminal cases. I'm very thankful that this form of treatment still exists. It may seem barbaric to shock someone's brain to the point of seizure, but for the folks who genuinely need it, it can literally be a lifesaver. Thank you for all you do, and suck. Hail Nimrod. Hail Nimrod, Vanessa. That was good to hear. So glad you're feeling better. Man, what, what an ordeal you've been through. Uh, good to know that Dr. Shockey McShockerton is doing some good in the world. A lot more than I realized. You know, again, shows what I know. You know, I'm learning that uh, if I haven't specifically researched something for one of these episodes, uh, I don't know a lot about it. And, and there's a lot more I could I could learn about the things I have researched. So, so thanks for sharing that. You know, maybe some other listener hearing about it will look into it if they really truly need it, and it'll help uh, save their life as well. So, hail Nimrod! And finally, last one from Time Sucker Taylor Reno. This harkens back to the Nigerian email scam episode a long time ago. It feels topical right now, though, for reasons again I'll hit in a second. He says. Hello, Dan. Currently trying to sell my old car after buying a new one, and I got this potential scam. If you read it, you can see how easily it would be to fall for this. This scammer seems genuine and doesn't even mention the fake website right away. Genius move. I was suspicious after he mentioned that he wanted a VIN report from this specific site. After extensive Googling, I found it was a scam, and I forwarded this email to spam at uce.gov to report it. Please let everyone know to forward any suspicious emails to this address, and watch out if you are selling your car for potential scammers. Not all scams are from Reverend Doctors. Uh, keep on sucking, Taylor. And here, here's the scam email Taylor received. It says, uh, to be able to come, see, test, and make a deal for it face-to-face, I need the report so I can pass it to my loan officer and make sure he will allow me to buy it. I need the report because the loan company asked for it. Please go to auto, autosreport.com and get one. 
will not make sense for me to get one because I can't reuse it like you can. You will be able to give it to all your potential buyers. Me, on the other hand, if, if will not be okay, I will give to look for a new vehicle and get a new report. I know it is only $24, but I have to run five reports until I find an okay report. Where will I be? If the report will be okay, you can consider it sold. Regards, P.S. If it is about money, I will add the $25 to the final price. So, uh, again, also be very leery if the grammar is insane on emails. That's a, that's a tip as well. That's a red flag. But God damn it, man, those sneaky bastards, so many scams, and I wanted to include this update in this episode because they're scamming people right now regarding Hurricane Harvey. Sending emails. If you get emails, you know, to donate, uh, I wouldn't. Scam-free donation sites are listed in today's episode description, the ones I mentioned earlier. Thanks for all the knowledge, Time Suckers. Fucking love you guys. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. All right, that's it, everybody. Have a fantastic week. Hope you had a great Labor Day weekend. If you're, if you're hearing this at the very end of it, I hope you're still having one. Uh, and if you're in Houston, you know, uh, or the Houston area, our thoughts are with you. And I hope you get much needed relief very soon and that you're safe. And uh, stay curious. Stay in the cult of the curious, you magnificent bastards. Try not to start shit with strangers. You never know who you're messing with. Uh, I need to take my own advice there. Hail Nimrod. Praise Bojangles. And that's it. Keep on sucking. Oh, shit.